I had um you you remember pho or the Vietnamese soup? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or pho. The one that you turn angry red by spooning tons and tons of hot stuff into it? Yeah, well, it makes it delicious. Um, it does, yeah. <laughs> we have one here that's in Asia. It's, it's double A f- Asian fusion, and they have a meatball pho. <laughs> they just put meat, like Italian meatballs. And, like, it's they it's put... actually called double A? Yeah, it's AA Asian fusion. So it's, it's Arn Anderson's uh, Asian fusion restaurant? Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by a man who'll be portraying four different masked podcasters tonight, Alec Bridgen. I am a man of mystery. (laughs) You are uh, many men of mystery. Mm -hmm. And the towering titan of triliteration, John Mullins. I only knew what that meant. (laughs) How's it going today, guys? Good, good. Pretty good. Well, today we're going to be taking a look at Starcade 89, Future Shock. Starcade 89, Future Shock, was broadcast on December 13, 1989, from the Omni in Atlanta, Georgia, in front of 6,000 people, 5,200 paid. Another 150,000 people tuned in by pay per view. Now, this is a bit of an unusual show. Rather than the usual collection of storylines and title matches, Starcade 89 is focused on two Iron Man tournaments, one for tag teams and one for singles wrestlers. The participants in the singles tournament are Ric Flair, Sting, Lex Luger, and The Great Muta. The participants in the tag team tournament are the Legion of Doom, the Road Warriors, the Team of Doom, Ron Simmons and Butch Reed, the Steiner Brothers, and the new Wild Samoans. Now, I want to take a moment here to discuss that last team for a moment. All right. The new Wild Samoans are the team of Salofa Fatu Jr., going by Fatu, who will later become Rikishi in the WWF, and Samuel Anuai Fatu, going by the Samoan Savage. I'm going to call the latter Sam, because calling someone a Samoan savage really makes me uncomfortable. I can see that. I'll also note that I'm much more fond of another name this team goes by, the Samoan SWAT team. Mm -hmm. I think that's a much better name. So about the team. It's fine. It's absolutely fine if you're making a team to truthfully, honestly honor the cultural heritage of team members. It's not okay if you're making a team to portray their cultural heritage as inferior. And on this show, some things lean towards the latter. We get comments that lean into savage stereotypes of lack of intellect or inability to control yourself in situations requiring discipline. Some could be sold as talking about the individual people, but others are more clearly directed at the overall race or culture. It's a real mark against the commentary tonight. And the team has a pre-match ceremony, which is fine and even kind of neat, until you realize that all that's meant to do is get the crowd to boo them, because, you know, 
that's different. Yeah, there's a little of that. Yeah. There's other things on this and other shows, but the point is the whole gimmick of this team appears to be they're Samoan, and that makes them different, so boo them. That's one of the bad things that wrestling does sometimes. There's many gimmicks over the years built on just that idea, people from a culture other than that of the primary viewing audience being bad or portrayed as stereotypes. The Great Muta suffers somewhat from it as well on this show, though he does seem to have more to his character than just being from Japan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's something that wrestling needs to permanently overcome. There has been progress. The Rock is part Samoan, but his gimmick is about much, much more. And if he's taken as good or bad, is because of who he is personally, not anything about his cultural heritage. Roman Reigns, similarly, is of Samoan heritage, but that isn't the sum total of his gimmick. Both acknowledged and honored their heritage, but their characters were about who they were personally. Thus, making them face or heel, good or bad, is about what they personally do, their personal attitude, not their race or culture. The point is, you can involve culture, but don't mock it. And characters should be more than just their heritage. Wrestling is making progress on this sort of thing, but this is still a gimmick type that crops up time and again. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an issue watching older shows where they do that. Um, I think, like I said, Muda's not as, they're not as bad with Muda on that. There's one point I noticed rewatching one of the matches where they refer to this, this idea that Muda won't give up because of his Japanese pride. Yeah. Like, I feel like you could have said pride and that'd be fine. Exactly. What's specific about Japanese pride? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It's just comments that you really shouldn't make. You know, the yeah, general generalization of you know right. tropes and and stereotypes and perpetuating things that don't really necessarily come from that character, but are just attributed to them. Are you know because it's it, it's not low hanging fruit. It just shouldn't be fruit. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you good know, point. it's just something that you know perhaps they know that some of the audience has are maybe a little bit xenophobic or mm-hmm. don't fully understand them, and they're supposed to be n- not a face, and so they just play into it uh, right. maybe a little bit too much. It's something that's going to crop up from time to time, and I just felt like we needed to kind of say our piece on it. Now, normally we do some coverage of the storylines for each match before discussing that match, but this time the show is all about a tournament, so the stories going in are more about the tournaments as a whole rather than any individual match. So, Al, why don't you go ahead and set the scene for the show? So the tag team team has shifted a lot since the last show. As Bob noted, there's cold teams we haven't seen before at all, and one that we only saw half of before. So Scott Steiner is the first one. He comes in, joins Brother Brick, once they stop making him a singles wrestler. They come in really strong early in 1989. They build them very quickly towards trying to win the tag titles, but things keep happening against them. At this point, the Freebirds have them. They have two valets, which is weird. Um, and then one of them turns on them. That's that woman. Okay. And she, for some reason, she's mad at them. I'm not really clear why she's mad at them, because she turns on them. It's not even the way around. She's just evil, I guess. So she vows, heading into Halloween Havoc, a show we won't cover yet, that she's going to bring their doom to them. Uh... So she introduces doom that way. I would note that the Steiners actually won the tag titles in November, so less than barely a month before this show. Which is interesting, because you think you'd save that for Starcade, but they have weird tournaments, so we can't do that. Yeah. The notable thing about doom is... They do it at Halloween Havoc, and they beat the Steiner Brothers, which is a big get for them. And that's before they win the title, so it's not a title match. Right. And so they are evil mask wrestlers, so you can probably guess how they win. Uh, twin magic, of course. 
a little of that, but the extra, the added bonus. Oh, of the, the mask. are they doing the headbutt? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, they put the metal in their mask and went that way. <sighs> yep. I put a place for the sigh in the notes as well. It's just for you. <laughs> it's the gimmick that won't go away. Yeah, that's true. Uh, the Road Warriors, obviously we know them from previous shows. They're still here. Since the last show, they lost the tag titles they were holding during that one in very screwy fashion. The team that actually beat them also loses the, the titles, not to them, mind you, just loses them completely in also a screwy fashion. So I guess that kind of balances out? Sure. Yeah, I guess. Karma. Ever since then, they've been feuding with this new team came in called the Skyscrapers, just Dan Spivey and Sid Vicious. That's been the feud going through Halloween Havoc and leading into this show. Unfortunately, on their match on the Clash of Champions, remember before this, they not fully break, thankfully, but they severely bruise one of Sid Vicious's ribs. Because ah. that's the kind of match they have. They just hit each other really hard and knock each other around. Yeah. So the skyscrapers despite being put in the video package literally the first thing you see in the video package are not on the show <laughs> I think they were really hoping that they'd be okay to do it they say in kayfabe anyway that the day of they checked and they verified he's not ready Yeah. so I don't know how much time they really knew for sure they wouldn't be in there but it's a little weird the Simone Swatch team as Bob talked about they were brought in from the AWA one half of the Rhythm and Express abruptly left before the blow off match so suddenly Poor Polly Dangerously is left with half of a tag team. <laughs> and no offense, but the half left is Randy Rose, who was okay, but nothing groundbreaking. So he's got to do something else. Ravishing Randy Rose. Excuse me, yes. <laughs> they came in shortly after that fuse. They've been hanging around for six to eight months at this point, but they haven't really done a whole lot. There's a War Games match they're in, which is not that notable in the long term. Uh, they've wrestled the titles, they never won titles. So they really are a last-minute who's still left around here. And for some reason, we can't call it the Midnight Express, even though they do work here right now. Yeah. And for this show, the replacement. So it's nothing against them. It's just that's where they were in the card at that point. And they lucked out by being backstage, I guess, when they needed. <laughs> so then we have the singles. We have one new face in the group, and this time it's painted. And yes, something more than Sting. <laughs> Ric Flair is naturally world champion. But at this point, he is now actually a face. He turned face early in the year while feeding with Terry Funk, who, strangely enough, is on commentary at this point. I think because of an injury he had after that feud. Mm -hmm. So Flair and the remnants of the Horsemen, which at this point is Arn Anderson and Ole Anderson, they are together in their faces, and they're being feeding with the J Tex Corporation, which is still a really stupid name, just for the <laughs> record. <laughs> Essentially... <laughs> Essentially a mix of Western bad guys and the Great Muda. Brought him by Gary Hart. Lex Luger is here, and he is now the U.S. champion. He's had a very interesting year of winning, losing, and then regaining the title, so he's been very busy. Um, as part of his build-up to win the title, he turned heel, so he's now a bad guy again. So he's keeping track. He was a bad guy when he debuted, he was a face last year, and now he's a bad guy again. Yeah, you know, just kind of big showing it a bit. But yeah. <laughs> his name is only a, like one sound away from Lex Luthor. Yeah. He's kind of doomed to evil then, isn't he? Mm -hmm. I should also note that he turned heel against Ricky Steamboat, who is unfortunately not on this show. Oh, as yeah. cool as it would be, nothing against Nuda, but having Steamboat as a fourth person wouldn't really be cool. Unfortunately, there was issues with management, apparently. Wikipedia's not super clear on that. So he comes, so Steamboat briefly, he comes into the company back from WWF. 
uh, managed to win the world title on one of the shows, loses it later, and then by the, end, by the next Starcade, he's gone. Yeah. So we miss all of that going with Starcade. He has a series of legendary matches with Ric Flair, mm-hmm. regarded as some of the best matches in wrestling history. Oh, yeah. And they don't manage to get one of them on Starcade. <laughs> no. <laughs> the legendary Chinatown Rumble gets one, but not yeah. us. Uh, as far as Sting goes, Sting, because they've determined they're not giving him the world title just yet, they gave him the slightly less illustrious prize of being the world television champion, which he held for a while until he lost it to Muda in very dubious fashion. He would never actually regain it back during this feud, so Muda's actually the TV champion going into this. Speaking of which, he came in 1989, as mentioned, with the Daytex Corporation. He's manned by Gary Hart, and he was teamed with Terry Funk, who's a noble class to team up together. Or, excuse me, he's supposed to team together, but then Terry Funk's out, so... Oh, okay. Also worth noting, Great Muda is undefeated. Ever since he entered the company, he has not officially lost a match. No. And they don't count Halloween Havoc, where he wasn't pinned. Oh, okay. Just to be yeah. clear. He himself was not pinned. He personally has not has not been pinned. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Can I just mention for a moment how incredibly annoyed I was to see that Arn Anderson and Ole Anderson are back, but are not in the tag team tournament. Yeah. And I get that Ole's partially or mostly retired at this point, but yes. man, I would have I would have loved to have some Anderson goodness on this show. Yeah, and honestly, it's... it would been great to have Tully back, but there's a whole yeah, there's story a whole that, thing on that. So, yeah. yeah, at least the, you know they make an appearance. Yes. We get a truly wonderful video package to start that looks like it's right out of someone's low-budget Shadowrun film with a futuristic-looking computer backdrop showing shots of the participants of tonight's tournaments, except that, as you mentioned, it still shows the skyscrapers, Sid Vicious and Dan Spivey. Also, strangely, each tag team gets listed individually, and Sting and Luger get listed individually, but Flair and Muta have to share a screen. Yeah, that's true. I forgot that. It's kind of weird. The uh, National Anthem is back to start us off. It's a recorded version, but not the recorded version with the glitchy tape from a few years back, at least. That tape was finally sold at a yard sale. (laughs) Yeah. Our host, JR, welcomes us to the show and builds up the two tournaments, then introduces his co-host. For the singles tournament, he'll be joined by Terry Funk. And for the tag teams, he'll be joined by Jim Cornette and his amazing Santa tennis racket. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was great. This time is when Tony Schiavone is actually over in WWF. Yes. He spends about a year over there between Mania 5 and 6, I think. I believe that is the timeline, yeah. Yeah. So he will be back in 1990. Mm -hmm. He will debatably be happy about that. (laughs) (laughs) Cornette breaks down the scoring system. For a pinfall or submission, you get 20 points. For a countout, you get 15 points. For a disqualification, you get 10 points, and for a draw, you get 5 points. I should clarify here, this is not an elimination tournament. Yes. This is a uh, tournament for points. Whoever has the highest score after they have uh, matches against each of the other opponents wins the tournament. I have to say, and I know I'm going to regret this, because this scoring system means that there's 12 matches on this show rather than 6. Yeah. But I really like the idea of a scored tournament rather than an elimination one. There just seemed like there's more story possibilities 
especially with the difference in scores between the win types. How you win can matter. A guy could get to the end with two wins, and so could another guy, but if one of them won by pinfall both times and the other by disqualification both times, there's a huge difference in their score. It's a pretty neat way to run a tournament. I think they also used it in the Fire Pro Wrestling games. I think there's a mode in those generally that uses this idea. <laughs> uh, JR, I noticed, uh, says that all the matches can be considered main events. That has to be a record for supposed main events on a show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we get the introduction of the, of the various tag teams on a seriously awesome stage setup. Mm -hmm. Really a neat design with staircases to platforms for each of the teams. It ends with a nice little pyro display as Doom's oddly jazzy music starts playing. <laughs> Let's go to the ring. Our first match is Doom, or the team of Doom, with Woman and Nitron versus the Steiner brothers, Rick and Scott Steiner. Nitron, incidentally, is Tyler Maine of Sabretooth fame. Oh, you put my reveal, Bob. We'll <laughs> later. He was also Michael Myers in the Halloween remakes. Which there you go. I like this this match in that it's like Doom versus Wolfensteiners. <laughs> it's like it's got a video game reference in there. Yeah, yeah. That is perfect. That's great. <laughs> Rick and Scott are the world tag team champions at this point, but this isn't for the title, of course, because, you know, tournament. JR and Cornette talk about the skyscraper's replacement in the tournament by the Samoan SWAT team. Oddly, Cornette uses that name for them. Well, the announcer just called them the Wild Samoans, so I guess they're testing which one people like better. I think that what happened was they originally brought in the Samoan SWAT team, and at some point they decided the new Wild Samoan branding would be better. I think Cornette just doesn't care. We've watched some shows later on, like uh, I think Capital Combat 90 they're on, mm. which definitely we will have to do for this at some point. Oh, yeah. Don't spoil anything for John. I will not. But I know they're called Samoan SWAT team on that. Yes. So they seem to just kind of go back and forth. I'm not clear if we're supposed to know that Doom is Ron Simmons and Butch Reed or not. I, I don't believe so. I don't think so because JR just keeps referring to them by numbers, so I'm going to do the same. Scott Steiner and Doom 1 start off pretty evenly matched until Scott counters a whip to the ropes with a leapfrog and a Steiner line. That's the Steiner's particularly vicious clothesline. Mm -hmm. Smack to the head. Scott and Rick trade off to hit big power moves on Doom 1 and Doom 2, and there's an odd spot where Doom 2 hits an atomic drop on Scott, but he no-sells and hits one on Doom 2, who doesn't no-sell, but kind of stands there reeling two inches away from his corner, but doesn't even try to reach out for a tag. <laughs> JR notes that people are still arriving for the show, which is why there's a lot of empty seats. Cornette jokes that they're all out buying Midnight Express merchandise in the lobby. Pretty good way to cover. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Scott and Rick continue to dominate and mix in some amateur wrestling, but Doom 1 dodges Scott's charging clothesline and Scott spills out of the ring. Nitron takes the opportunity to land some punches, and Scott climbs back in, only to eat a massive power slam from Doom 1. Really impressive one. We get the power slam a few times tonight, but I think this one was the best one, honestly. It's a pretty good one, yeah, yeah. Doom 1 and 2 team up to beat up Scott, with Nitron joining in when the ref isn't looking, and Cornette points out that Scott is taking a bad beating here, but he still has two more matches to wrestle. Scott fights back and manages a cradle for two, but that just earns him more abuse, including some nasty stomps to the head by Doom 2, a double back body drop from both, and a big spine buster for two and a half by Doom 1. 
and a further two count. Kind of nice way to sell that. He stays yeah. down that long. Doom 1 puts his feet on the ropes for a headlock, and Doom 2 puts his foot on the ropes too. I'm pretty sure that would actually, if anything, fight against whatever Doom 1 was gaining there, but I like the team aspect, so nice spot anyway. Yeah, I'm not sure how that works angle-wise. And the yeah. ref is oblivious. Oh yes, of course. Scott gets a leapfrog into a belly-to-belly suplex and tags Rick, who beats up both Doom guys with big punches and Steiner lines and a nice power slam. Nitron trips Rick coming off the ropes, so he goes out and hits a Steiner line on Nitron, who sells it pretty poorly. Everybody brawls outside, but Rick makes it back in just before the 10 count for the win. The Steiner brothers get 15 points for the countout victory. I'm torn on this because, I mean, the Doom matches, I won't spoil it too much, but are not my favorite part of the show. I feel like the other pairings work better in general. But my issue with this really is that, so the Steiners, the way this feud's gone, the Steiners lose in a screwy fashion to Doom and Halloween Havoc. But then when the title's after that, so they're going in as the champion. So I would expect like a really strong, no, yeah, dominant victory, but a clear victory as their first appearance on this show. Mm-hmm. And it's just Rick hearing the ref count and, and jumping back in at the last minute, winning the same way that Barry Windham won his U.S. title match last show. Yeah. And he was a heel to that. So that aside, though, it's still a pretty good match. I noted that it was, I don't know, but both teams knocked the hell out of each other. Yes. Which is definitely true. The one thing I will say with the finish is that maybe the ideas are saving this for a future rematch because mm-hmm. they've had the one match... And even though this is a pay-per-view, maybe they're treating this as a big pay-per-view. They're saving it for Russell War, which I believe is the next show. So maybe they don't want the Steiner Brothers officially pin them before Russell War. They want to save that for an actual title match or something, maybe. Yeah. And that would maybe would be a stronger point had their matches gone through the matches, the rest of the show gone differently. But yeah. Yeah. Oh, also, it's, it's perfectly fine. It's just, yeah, that finish takes away from me because it's, it's the faces suddenly realizing they had to jump back in the ring and win, even though they've been pretty strong throughout the show, mm-hmm. or the match, rather. I thought it was a great slugfest. I mean, it was not It was all over the place, pretty chaotic. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of energy, which is what you want for the first match. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I think having some controversy, you know, like that there's some dirt foul play to get them out of the ring in the first place, is going to not only illustrates the, the whole how points can go and it it makes you wonder if they're ever going to catch up so i think it's it's a good way to end it it didn't bother me mm-hmm. in fact when i was talking to al earlier i didn't realize it was 15 points i'm like oh yeah <laughs> it's 10 or something <laughs> yeah yeah the count out is is a is a decent score it's just not as good as the pinfall or submission one yeah you make an interesting point there al that you knew a bit more of the storyline of their previous match and then how they won the title and everything like that. So you had a little bit more reason to want the Steiners to have a clear definitive victory over Doom here. Yeah. Where uh, John and I, I think both really only had the show storyline. Sure. So for both of us, it's a little bit neat actually to see there's all these different um, ways that matches can end but there's actually a point to using those different ways on this show because you're you're assembling an interesting score-based storyline. Mm-hmm. So I think if you look at it purely from this show alone, then it's kind of it's an interesting ending. If you look at it from the context of the wider Steiner storyline, then I can see it being dissatisfying, mm-hmm. that you want something more from it. 
And I think they did a good job with the point spread in that, like, I don't think there was ever a point where, like, someone was over 20 points. Like, like the the pinfall wouldn't have made a difference or at least tied yeah, them. At, they with managed at least... it pretty well. Yeah. Like you guys said, uh, this is a nice, fast-paced, hard-hitting match. Not a bad choice at all for an opener. Doom and the Steiners both felt like they had a ton of power and everything felt like it had impact. Scott put in a really good showing for himself. It's the first time we've actually seen him on, you know, for our show. Mm -hmm. And they gave him the majority of the match. Like his brother, he's powerful, but he's still quick and nimble. The Steiners both have this nice combination of raw power and amateur wrestling skills that make them a, a unique team for this era. Oh, yeah. There's a feeling of legitimacy about what they do here. Doom also did quite respectable work themselves as a big power team, very believable as a threat, and had some very nice double-team spots. Um, I appreciated interference from Nitron was nicely timed and wasn't overused. I did think the timing for Rick's slide into the ring was excellent. Oh yeah, true. However, the camera work was not. We mostly missed him <laughs> actually getting in. So yeah, overall, really nice opening match. I, uh, I'm not sure that there's any other match you could have picked for the opener that would have been a better choice to to get people all charged up. There's Steiner's Legion of Doom later on, obviously, mm -hmm. but I don't think you want to open with that one. No, no. That That's one you want to make people in anticipate. <laughs> yeah, no, of the tag team ones, it's probably the, the strongest way to open it. Yeah. I will say one thing on Nitron, um, besides him being Tyler Mayman, which is funny, is that he has this weird kind of look as a big tough guy. I don't know yeah. that. Because it's like his jacket says big tough guy, like leather jacket looking thing. But then he's wearing like the pants you go and you're like, you're skiing. True. Yeah. And they're in Atlanta. I mean, granted it's winter, but they're in Atlanta. There is not skiing over there. <laughs> it's the 80s. Like track suits are in and, and stuff like that. <laughs> Maybe just judging by the way Diesel looks later. More than anybody else. We go back to the stage, and they've got the side staircases draped with curtains. As the announcer introduces each wrestler for the singles competition, the curtain raises to reveal him, which would be nice if the curtains moved a little bit faster. <laughs> Anticipation. Yeah. Luger, as you mentioned, is a heel again, so he gets flashy entrance gear that's part robe, part Roman Centurion armor. I really liked that, actually. I thought it looked cool. Yeah, I'm torn on that one. It, it's interesting. It's kind of a, a late 80s, very late 80s <laughs> thing, but it's. I appreciate it. It's not just a robe. Yeah, yeah. He's, like, differentiated himself from Flair now. Sure. Ric Flair, speaking of, has an awesome purple and silver robe. Like, classic Flair gear there. Mm-hmm. Some sparks fall down as Flair is introduced, too, which is somewhat worrisome as there didn't actually appear to be any pyro going off this time. I was wondering if the uh, motors for raising the curtains were having a problem or something. <laughs> Could be. If no one gets burned, it's a, it's in the show. It, it's a good <laughs> thing. I think the, the general stage setup tonight just looked cool. It worked well for these two intros of the, the two tournaments, and it just, like gives you a really neat stage design. We haven't actually had a stage design to discuss at any point. No. Uh, these have been very basic up till now. But true. this is the first time they did like a showy entrance ramp that gives the show its own unique feel. Yeah. I think uh, Lex might have uh, not only got his armor, but the stage stuff from American Gladiators. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. If they had the tennis ball cannon in the middle, that would be even better. <sighs> have that to, as they try and run towards the ring or something. Yeah. 
I will say he does take on a Roman name when he comes to WWF years later. Yes. So that yeah. could be connected. <laughs> be foreshadowing. I would say yeah, the closest thing you had to a stage really was that one show. I want to say '86 or '87. I forget which. Where Ric Flair walks out and they put they have the flash paper display behind him, which doesn't <laughs> yeah. quite work as on cue. <laughs> We just sort of pause and stay in the aisle, and they try to make flash paper look cool. And where where you see it, like the 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 flaming bits of paper raining down on the crowd, and you're yeah. like, oh my gosh, no! <laughs> yeah, I forget, I think that was eighty six. I think it was eighty six. I think so. Yeah. And and Flair's hair is legit a fire hazard. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of product in that hair. Our second match for the night is Sting versus Lex Luger in the first match for the singles tournament. Luger, as you mentioned, is United States champion. JR and Funk uh, build up that Sting and Luger used to be friends, but no more. They note that both are going to be a, a huge part of pro wrestling in the 1990s. JR calls them the prototypes for the modern pro wrestler. Funk says that the both of them are going to have to show flair that. And they'll have to show him the hard way. I liked the kind of uh, generational storyline they kind of had going on with that. Uh, it's a nice touch. Our referee for this match is Nick Patrick making his first appearance for our show. Yay! He is one of WCW's most famous referees. He will go on to be a ref in WCW, I believe, straight up through its ending. Yes. John, we've actually seen a member of Nick Patrick's family on the show before. Can you guess who? Nope. No? Not even going to hazard a guess? Nope. It's our old buddy, Assassin Number One. Yeah. He was the cuddly one. (laughs) Yes, he was. That's Nick Patrick's father. Oh. Yep. Yes, that's true. The fans taunt Luger, who yells at them and tries to walk out. Sting chases him down and fights him back to the ring. JR says that if both men are counted out, no points are awarded. But wouldn't that be a draw? I guess that wouldn't be a draw because that is a decision. The draw is when there's no decision, there's no pinfall or count out or DQ. I guess, but I mean, technically, if you simultaneously get the same decision, that would be a draw. But, oh well, it's their rules. Their way. They both considered like disqualified, so Yeah, I guess it's just draw only means the time limit draw specifically. Back in the ring, Sting gets Luger tied in the ropes. Sting dives at Luger for a crossbody, but Luger dodges, and Sting flies out over the top rope, but catches hold of the rope, whips himself up on the apron, dodges a Luger clothesline, hits one of his own, and dives into the ring onto Luger for two in an absolutely amazing spot. That was very impressive, yeah. They go outside to brawl, where Luger tries barricade smashes, but Sting counters them. Back in for some wonderful Luger selling with howls of pain as Sting grabs an armbar. Luger briefly gets out and whips Sting to the corner, but Sting smoothly hops up on the turnbuckle and comes off in a crossbody for two, then goes back to the armbar as I'm pretty sure the crowd was chanting, Break it. (laughs) (laughs) The crowd's vicious tonight. A lot of Ivan Drago's in the crowd. Yeah. Sting hits a monster dropkick with an amazing vertical leap and Funk notes that he's definitely got the advantage. Luger finally catches him coming off the ropes and lands an inverted atomic drop, and Funk notes that he'd always said he was picking Luger for the tournament. (laughs) Quick turnaround there, Mr. Funk. Luger lands hard strikes and charging kicks, and JR notes that Luger was an offensive guard in football, as Funk points out he should have been punting. 
Luger taunts the crowd with a peck jiggle. <laughs> a big power slam sets up the torture rack, but Sting backflips out and they trade blows. Sting goes for his crossbody again with Luger against the ropes, but sees Luger ready to dodge and stops, hitting a punch and a suplex instead. It's a great spot there, I think, as he learned from his mistake before. Oh, yeah. Luger tries to take the draw and stalls outside the ring, but Sting chases him and beats him up. They end up on the apron, and Sting tries to clothesline Luger in, but Luger grabs him, and they spill, kind of slowly, over the ropes, with Luger landing on top and grabbing the ropes for the three count and the win. Sting calmly informs Nick Patrick that Luger used the ropes, but the match goes to Luger. Luger gets the pin for 20 points. Well, that's okay. I'm sure that Nick Patrick will learn and be a good, reliable, and entirely trustworthy referee for the rest of his time at WCW. I see no reason to question that <laughs> statement. Now that you mention it, yeah. <laughs> I thought this was really, another really strong match. I would almost argue that you could have opened with this if you'd done the singles first. But I don't, I don't know how they decided who went when. Coin toss. Coin toss, supposedly. <laughs> they said that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I love this, I, I love these coin tosses that are in wrestling or filmed. They don't think they ever document in any way. Some of the war games do it, but they never actually they see them. They show them doing it, but they never see yeah. what the coin is. And they never seem to go the face's way for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. Mm. It was nice seeing... Sting in a singles match because our first singles match was Sting in Starcade. Yeah, I think you're right, yeah. Because he's part of the six man originally, which has no finish. Then he's in part of the tag with Dusty Rhodes as the DQ. Yeah. And they've yeah. yeah. It's definitely not Sting's actual first singles match. He's had probably a hundred of them at this point from all the T V tapings. But no, it's nice fun to get one of those in the show. Yeah, that's great. And then get two more, which is also great. It's definitely clear watching Sting at this point what people see in him. He has a natural energy, he has a really good look, and he's very athletic. He's his drop kick and his spot where he catches himself on the rope and that. That's all really good. Luger, for his part, is obviously very athletically gifted as well. He probably has like 2% body fat at that point. Who knows? He bragged about it at one point much later in his career. Yeah. So I can only imagine like 14 years earlier he was probably at that like all the time. What he really brings is he really embraces being a heel, mm-hmm. which... We got to obviously we had him as a heel originally in '87, but he was very, very new to wrestling at that point. He'd only been in the sport less than a year, so it's really not fair to judge him by that standard. This is definitely the heel Luger we expect to see. He has terrific crowd interaction tonight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think the ang- anger is legit. <laughs> yeah, <Sometimes>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I think there is probably some of that with him. Obviously, I'm taking a little issue with the finish, but I do understand your point with the earlier finish. And in this case, it's setting up a larger story that you really want to see Sting as Victor right away, but they don't let you get that yet. Mm-hmm. And it puts Luger in a position as a heel to sort of be braggadocious if they actually did promos in the show, which they don't. Really setting them up as a favor going in there. So while I wish they had a more clear finish, I fully understand why they did this one. And at least with this one, it is clear. It is still a pinfall. True. It's yeah, just no. a pinfall that where he's you know cheating, and it's a little bit of a awkward getting there right right yeah I, I was cringing the whole time they were doing that awkward uh over the top uh yeah. thing i'm like how how does sting even think that this is going to come out all right <laughs> yeah <laughs> positioning and everything but i think well well both of us were watching it for a moment i made a kind of like <gasps> noise when uh when they went over the ropes <laughs> like are they gonna hit their heads or but they lived <laughs> yeah 
But no, it's a really good match. Um, I don't like scree finishes, but this one's acceptable because I understand the story of it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of great athleticism. I love Sting's outfit, the Sting Million or whatever they want to call it, or the <laughs> the, the Million or whatever you want to call it. I like the, the multiple colors. Mm-hmm. It kind of fits his uh, style. He adapts to what's going on. You know, he might have a mistake here and there. You know, like like you said, like he warms up and he won't fall for the same trick twice. Yeah. So it it I think it gives a little bit of um, additional drive to the match because you see that pattern set up, and you're like, okay, is he going to fall for it? And and he doesn't. And how's he going to get out of it? I think that it sets good expectations. Uh, the fact that uh, Luger is really good in his heel role, and being the first match of the night, I think like it always plays up to. You know, you want to build up a character, you need to give them some adversity right off the Mm -hmm. bat. Yeah, I agree. I I think it works really well to have Luger take the first win in this tournament and to have Sting start out, like you said, with some adversity. That's going to end up giving you something to root for as the show goes on. Mm -hmm. You want the crowd really charged up for Sting. So I think giving him that that initial loss is, is pretty nice. I mean, alternatively, you know, like, it's like, is he going to just automatically f- lose the second match if he wins the first, just so mm-hmm. that there is that tension here with the point system again, you know, they're, they're doing a really good job of, of building that yeah. syst- systemic uh, excitement. Yeah, yeah, that works. Yeah, another really fun match here. Um, there's a lot of striking and not a ton of move variety from these two in this match, but there were some really great ideas for spots. The overall story of the match felt really solid, and I really liked Luger's fine, I'll take the draw strategy that he gets to at the end of the match. (laughs) Yeah. Sting's agility continues to impress, and he pulled off some amazing moves here. And Luger, like you were saying, is a very effective foil and does a great job of riling up the crowd. Mm -hmm. The ending, like we said, I feel like it didn't quite go right. I think they thought that they could spill over the ropes a little smoother than that, but... They got a little bit muddled in just how to do it to get Luger land on top. Hardly a match ruiner. It still works out. And they managed to make it look like they were legitimately struggling with each other. But it did stick out with the rest of it all being really smooth for the rest of the match. I will know this is the first uh, match of the show where the timing is definitely suspect as far as there being 15-minute time limits. (laughs) True. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the whole story is you have to do it in 15 minutes or it's a draw. They build up um, when they go to the final spot, saying that 30 seconds left, starting to make this atmosphere of right. it's been quick, or like, you know, what's going to happen? And then you look at the actual match time officially listed, it's about 12 minutes. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, it's wrestling. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, it's just funny when the whole thing is built around this timeline. You have to be in this exact amount of space, and they're like, oh, oh uh, now it's 15 minutes. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they yeah, meant true. to say 300 seconds. You know, it's still wrong, <laughs> but it's closer. <laughs> to, it's accurate. Yeah. yeah, true. Our third match is the Team of Doom with Woman and Nitron versus the Legion of Doom, the Road Warriors, with Precious Paul Ellering. JR points out that the matches were determined by random draw, and Doom were quite unlucky. Cornette says he wouldn't call it luck, then calls it bad luck. <laughs> huh? <laughs> Animal starts with one member of Doom. JR calls it Doom 2, but Cornette says whichever one starts should be Doom 1, because if you start a match against Road Warrior Animal, you've got guts and you have to be number one. We'll we'll go with that then. (laughs) 
Animal starts with Doom 1, and they shove each other around before Animal hits a big dropkick. Tag to Hawk, and he and Doom 1 face off with shoulder blocks where neither move, until Hawk switches to a clothesline to take Doom 1 down. We get a great shot of woman yelling, What is happening? <laughs> In frustration. <laughs> the camera misses a tag, which isn't great when you're dealing with masked wrestlers, so thanks for that. Hawk and Doom 2 repeat the shoulder block spot, but end it with a Hawk power slam this time, and Hawk tags back to Animal, but Doom 2 fights back and briefly takes control. Animal reverses a whip into a big boot and gets a tag to Hawk, who hits a beautiful high-angle dropkick, but misses a charge and hits the post shoulder first. Cornette, discussing a pack of wrestling writers, says that JR mentioned that one of them was the leader, but he didn't know anyone led a pack of angry wolves. I'm guessing Mr. Cornette hasn't studied much about wolf packs. I mean, wolf packs won't be important in WCW, so it's okay. (laughs) The team of Doom dominates Hawk with stomps, punches, and a few double teams, alongside big power moves. There's a nice power slam in there again, and a really great diving clothesline. Woman gets involved too, holding onto Doom 2's feet when he puts him on the ropes for a headlock for leverage. They get a lot of two counts, some very close, but they can't keep Hawk down. Hawk finally fights back, but Doom 1 cuts him off and attempts a body slam, only for Hawk to come down on top and tag Animal. Animal in for a flying shoulder block, then a massive power slam, everyone in and brawling, and a Doom member tries to get Animal for a pile driver, but Hawk dives off the top rope for a clothesline, and Animal gets the three count for the win and 20 points. Woman is not pleased. I thought it was pretty good. I feel like I liked the first tag match better with Doom, with signers in them. Nothing really goes wrong here. The closing that really arguably goes wrong is that one Hawk dropkick, while really impressive on the height, does seem to barely connect with the other guy. He, like, nearly clears his head entirely, doesn't he? Yeah. (laughs) They like he was aiming for El Gigante, and then he just thought it was somebody (laughs) else. Um, But no, nothing nothing really goes wrong in this match. But no, I didn't feel like there was a lot of spark between them. (laughs) Some teams just sort of gel really well together, especially what we'll see later, and I just thought before, but... There's nothing bad, but there's nothing special with this one for me. It's decent what I do. They don't have a lot of story to it. It's just, we're both really strong guys, nine to the round. I will say, I'm going to be repetitive. I take issue with the finish, but not for the same reason I normally do. I take issue with the finish a little bit because Legion of Doom, at this point, our faces, just to be clear, despite the fact that, you know, they tried to blind Dusty Rhodes less than a year ago, <laughs> they're, they're good guys again because wrestling. He got better. Yeah. Yeah. And you got a new job, yes. Um, <laughs> and a lovely set of polka dots. Oh, yeah. So they're playing good guys here. They're strong, dominant good guys. And they win by one guy jumping and hitting a guy while he's not looking, and the other guy pinning him. Which feels like if that was reversed and Doom did, he'd be like, man, those evil Doom, they snuck up on them. I, I agree with you, except for the part about, well, he's not looking, because he is clearly looking well, at him the whole time. <laughs> but in storyline, he's supposed to not yes. see him coming here. No, I'll grant you that. Um, otherwise, it, it's like it's nothing, nothing bad. It's kind of in the middle for me. I didn't, I know the pairing didn't spark as much for me. Okay, that's all. What you said earlier, they're they were doomed to have any charisma together on both sides. <laughs> the thing that about this match that stood out to me, there was a lot of groundwork, a lot of stalls, a lot of holds that were. Yes, you had high flying stuff from Hawk and 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 you know big powerful, uh, very smooth suplexes but i noticed that they spent a lot of time just 
crawling around the mat, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and and I don't know if that's just like to save some strength or just drag out the match or everything, but it wasn't as energetic as all the ones before. I mean, yes, there was big moves, but it just was spaced out. I didn't think it amped, even though I love Legion of Doom. Mm-hmm. And I actually kind of like the athleticism of other Doom. <laughs> and That's uh, not confusing at all, is it? <laughs> no. No, no. I, I didn't know if they're going to play like on something like they're the usurpers that you know they're gonna you yeah. know take o- take over their title their name and everything and demolish them i don't know if it's actually even that well thought out given that they can't give woman a name <laughs> i don't i don't know if it's insulting or if it's empowering or what but it's just it's just odd yeah it's uh, you know it's like they wrote out like we'll give her a name and it just says woman says this and they just never changed it they're just like <laughs> yeah basically well it's yeah the the first from the first draft of the screenplay they never filled in the character name yeah <laughs> no but I mean she's she's a good actress she does a good job in her role but you know it, it wasn't anything special for me mm-hmm. and that and that's hard for me to say for uh, Legion of Doom match compared to the previous match it might be that they haven't worked together as much. Because as we noted, the Steiners fought Doom at least once in the big review, which probably meant they did several house shows in the yeah, circuit, true. building up and probably for TV tapings of some form. Whereas I don't know if Legion of Doom actually wrestled Doom directly at all before. They probably made at some point, but not that many times. So it could be they just don't have like spirit together, so they would stop and you know set up whatever sp- next they spot they want to do. Is. Say what they want to do next. Kind yeah, of disguise it that way. Yeah. The match was slow, except for the very end when they kind of do the whole free for all, and the, and the um, ref is like, "What do I do?" You know, like who's yeah. really tagged in, and I think that fits both their styles really well, and it's a good way to end the match. Yeah, I'm. I think I'm with you guys on this one. It's a decent big guys versus big guys kind of match, but while there's some nice spots here and there, things just didn't kind of click for me. Again, I can't put anything really together on exactly why, but it just doesn't seem to quite work. There's not really any cohesive storyline to it beyond the standard tag match story. There's nothing to make it more than that, I guess. Mm -hmm. The formula is quite visible here. It was somewhat in the first tag match, too, but that one had some more surprising moves to make up for it and some more energy. It's not too hard to understand, as Doom has been in one match already, so they might be a little bit tired, understandably. The ending spot I did kind of like, actually. I thought it was pretty cool, even if, yeah, the Doom member that got taken down really clearly should have seen Hawk climbing. <laughs> uh, he is totally looking his way the entire time. But this just wasn't what it could have been. It feels like it maybe if Doom hadn't already had a match, or like you said, if they had more experience working together. I don't know, but it feels like there's a better match to be had between these two teams. Nitron had some interference in the previous match, but in this one, his role is just stand with his arms crossed yeah. and then just stare at the ring. <laughs> well, they saw how he sold that Steiner line. They were like, oh, God, if uh, either Legion of Doom member hits you, you'll tick them off and they'll really hit you. <laughs> yeah, it's weird that he's not involved at all. <laughs> yeah. And now you say that, yeah, I <laughs> didn't think of that. I didn't actually think about it while I was watching the match, but looking back at it afterwards, you're like, oh, yeah. He, d- he didn't do anything. <laughs> no. Huh. Weird. Not even once. Our fourth match is the second match of our singles tournament. It is The Great Muta with Gary Hart versus Ric Flair with Arn and Ole Anderson. I was very happy to see those two come walking down the entrance ramp again. Mm-hmm. I was 
very sad, as I mentioned earlier, that they weren't actually in the tag tournament. But, you know, at least they're there. Oddly, they've added Copeland's fanfare for the common man in front of Ric Flair's usual sunrise fanfare from Strauss's also Sprock Zarathustra. It's kind of weird. It's a cool piece, but why is Ric Flair, of all people, using a theme that says, for the common man? I mean, that's kind of exactly the opposite of his gimmick. I would understand Dusty, but... Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a weird uh, dig at Dusty for people that know classical music. Maybe? I don't know. I think it's a licensing thing. <laughs> I don't know. During the entrances, we get shots of Norman the Lunatic. Oh, yeah. Dressed as Santa Claus, because reasons. I had fully embraced him from my mind. <laughs> they said the season is close. The season is near. Yeah, yeah, yeah. D- just to be clear, because he didn't come up on the show at all, Norman Lunatic, as you can probably guess by his name, his gimmick is that he's a mental patient. Yes. I don't know if he's a good guy at this point. I guess he must be. He's out I assume that since he's handing out candy to children, he's a good guy. But his original, when he came in, he was managed by Teddy Long. Teddy Long would bring him to the ring holding a giant key. The idea being that it was the key to his cell, so he could, at any point he could throw him back in his cell. And so this is the guy you have interacting with the fans at Riverside. Yes. Just saying. Ric Flair is currently the world champion, and the Great Muta is so far unpinned. Mm-hmm. We get a lockup to start, and Flair whips Muta to the ropes but gets shoulder blocked down. Flair tries a hip toss, but Muta punches him in the eye. Muta shoves him to the corner for kicks and hits rapid punches. Whipped to the other corner, and Muta hits his handspring elbow. Elbow drop by Muta, and he steps on Flair's face. J.R. and Funk note that Flair will be negatively impacted by the short time limit because he's a slow starter and likes to wrestle longer time limits. Flair wards Muta off with a kick, and they trade chops. Flair wins that competition and hits an inverted atomic drop, then a shinbreaker, and then gets the figure four. Muta doesn't quite seem to sell it at first, but he does after a moment or two. (laughs) Flair breaks the hold as Buzz Sawyer and the Dragon Master come down to the ring, but the Andersons take care of them. Back in the ring, Muta hits a backbreaker, then comes off the top rope in a moonsault. But Flair gets the knees up, and that stuns Muta long enough for Flair to get the three count and the win for 20 points. It's one of those matches that I feel like I'll talk about the match longer than the match even itself takes It's a place. very, very short match. Yeah, it may like not min- come across in my notes, but yeah, it's very short. Yeah, it's a minute 55, according to Wikipedia's official match time. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird that that's Muta's first match on the show, and it's his first loss in like eight months in the company. I note that as a good match that is played in fast forward. <laughs> <laughs> and also the interference is just to add extra to that. The, this is how Muda's streak ends? I mean, this company, as we'll see later, is not great with streaks and how you end them. My issue is just it's Muda and Ric Flair, which I don't think we... I'm sure we got later at some point, but it didn't get very often. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a shame that we only get it here in less than two minutes. Yeah. It really should be a great match. As it is, it's a series of interesting spots, and then just the match is over. Kind of a shame. I'm not going to say anything bad about Ric Flair, but I really enjoyed Muda. <laughs> it's just, I just didn't expect things to go that way. He was clearly the aggressor the whole match, and uh, you know, there's a lot of athleticism to him, and you know, he kind of reminds me of like a... Luchador, I think it has, it's just his movements. It obviously has some sort of uh, martial arts influence and mm-hmm. 
It's a shame if this is his first loss in eight months. And, you know, I know that Rick needs needs to do his thing, but, you know, I would have liked to see a different outcome. I feel like if they weren't going with a story where Sting has to come from behind, that Sting and Muda would have been a, would have been a stronger first match for Muda, and it would play off the story because Muda and Sting wrestled multiple times in the pay-per-view, and Sting could not get his win back over him after losing the title. Yeah. Yeah, what a weirdly short match. I kind of get why you might do it, that these guys both have a lot of matches ahead, so you might want one to be short. I don't know, but considering, like you said, this is Muta's first pinfall loss in the company, and you'd think that they would want it to feel more epic. Eh, rip the Band-Aid off fast, I guess. <laughs> I did appreciate that at least since it was going to be short, they made it really, really fast-paced. This is straight action from beginning to to the very quick and sudden end. But overall, it felt underwhelming, and I didn't really get a good sense for what Muta could do in this match, despite seeing some of his flashier moves here. What I saw of him did look good, at least. It's well-performed, it's just really short, without time to build to anything or seem significant. It's notable with Muta, I think, uh, as far as our viewing anyways, is that I'm trying to think of the closest thing we've had to a moonsault at all on this previous arcades. I don't think we've had one. Yeah, Bam Bam, I don't think, does his moonsault. He does his splash. Right. We have top rope moves, you know, from, you know whether it's Flair or other people, but I don't think we've had a moonsault Yeah. anybody. And his is beautiful. Oh, he yeah. He does a good job with it. It's kind of a shame that this big thing for us is also his downfall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, well, it's really cool. Oh, never mind. Well, it's like... uh we haven't seen Lex Luger successfully use his torture rack yet either. That's true. When, and that's a cool-looking submission hold, but it's just like, it's his big move. Oh, it, it literally never has worked yet. <laughs> okay. It's like if Flair doing the crossbody never didn't work the first time <laughs> and just skipped right to it never working again. <laughs> At least you got to see the Andersons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did get to see Arn Anderson punch somebody, so I'm a little happier. <laughs> Yeah. No, I I was rooting for Muda all two minutes of it, so... Yeah. (laughs) Our fifth match is back to the tag tournament, and we get the Steiner Brothers versus the Road Warriors with Paul Ellering. Scott has new gear on as he comes down to the ring, but Rick is dressed the same. But he smells great. (laughs) Well, he probably has like 85 copies of the same outfit backstage. I hope that's what that was. I hope so, too. JR says that this is the irresistible force versus the immovable object, and that this is the current champs versus the former champs and those regarded as perhaps the greatest tag team today. Cornette uh, chimes in that it's the insensible force versus the illiterate object. (laughs) That's Cornette for you. (laughs) Always ready for the sharp Mm. comment there. It really builds you up. (laughs) Yeah. Scott and Hawk start off with Scott out-wrestling Hawk, but Hawk holding his own with power. There's an amazing spot where Hawk catches Scott's leg on a kick, but Scott smoothly flips sideways, rolls, grabs Hawk's leg, and takes him down all in one motion. Cornette is actually amazed by that one, and so was I. Oh yeah, absolutely. Hawk does better against Rick, hitting a massive clothesline that flips him end over end, but it takes too long to go for the pin, and he only gets two and a half. Animal gets in, and Rick proves that he knows hard clotheslines too, as he nails Animal in the jaw with a Steiner line. Again, Animal fights back with power, but Rick reverses him with skilled wrestling, switching up a belly-to-belly suplex to hit his own. 
Scott and Hawk back in, and Hawk finally manages to overpower Scott, military pressing him with ease to start a more sustained assault. With Animal in, though, Scott still manages a sudden belly-to-belly suplex for two and, like, seven-eighths, mm-hmm. but gets too eager on a charge in the corner and eats a massive clothesline that knocks him flat. Cornette notes that Blue Cross Blue Shield Insurance will be the biggest loser tonight as they're going to be paying some medical bills. <laughs> Hawk back in to continue the attack, including a great gut-wrench suplex, but Scott turns things around again with a belly-to-belly off-the-top turnbuckle. It takes him down, too, though, and Animal is in with a bear hug. The Road Warriors press the attack hard and land strikes in a big power slam and elbow drop before Rick saves, and it all breaks down in a brawl. Cornette proclaims, I'm going with the Road Warriors. I'm always right about things like this. The Road Warriors go for the Doomsday device, but Animal's grip on Scott is weird, and Scott gets his shoulder up while Animal's is down, earning the Steiners the pin and 20 points. (laughs) Cornette wonderfully says, No, it couldn't be. I'm always right. JR says, not this time, pal. <laughs> the crowd is really, really torn about how to react to that one. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was a really nice uh, clash of styles here, because obviously the Road Warriors, it's not they don't know wrestling moves at all, because obviously they do, but they're definitely not known for that. They're known for throwing you around, just punching you and knocking you down. So seeing them fighting someone that really does suplexes and that kind of stuff is really neat to see. Because the question comes in with them is, can they keep up with that? Mm-hmm. Sometimes they can't, sometimes, but sometimes they actually can. To their credit, the Warriors do pretty respectable showing. Obviously, they're not going to be the Steiners in that regard. But hey, it's still pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the key for me was just that the Steiners out-wrestled them. I, I think it's funny because I just talked about how they don't ever do the Doomsday device. And then they try to do it, but they intentionally do the move wrong just for this finish. Mm-hmm. Because the way it always works is you hold them and they let them go. They don't all fall back with them like that and hold them into a pin. But for some reason, they decide to do that, right? And this time it doesn't work. I didn't take away from the match at all, which is kind of a funny side note for me. It's, it's really fun to watch the match, though. Mm-hmm. And here I thought the Hawk was the one that did it wrong. I mean, I know that it ended up that way, but you're right. They don't hold them like that. Mm-hmm. I like the opposing styles. Uh, both are... Clearly good at what they do. Uh, you know, Hawk and Animal are usually pretty domineering, but the signers give them a really good run with a lot of finesse. Still just huge, strong moves on both sides. One strikes, one's actual wrestling. And, and at some point, I keep on thinking they're going to do like something football-related because the yeah. way <laughs> one signer like, do that three-point stance, like he's going to charge them, <laughs> like waiting for some imaginary ball to be hiked. Yeah. I, I like the back and forth, and, you know, there's a lot of tension in that match for me. Yeah, it's two really, really good teams, and the crowd clearly loves both of them. So the crowd, like, can't pick between the two of them for the duration of the match, which is a pretty neat crowd reaction oh, that yeah, you get, absolutely. I think, during it. Yeah, this was a heck of a fun match. Uh, it had a great story, emphasized really well by the announcers, that it's technical expertise versus raw power. The Steiners, particularly Scott, show off some excellent wrestling work, and they keep the Road Warriors off balance. They're always able to twist away the power advantage at just the right moment. But the Road Warriors are always tough enough to just keep on coming, and the Steiners can never get them in a solid lock or hold to wear them down. Both teams hit some absolutely massive moves to each other, mm-hmm. and they just had, just had an energy to it that made it a really easy watch. The tag formula, I felt, was not as visible in this either, while Scott kind of gets a face and peril segment, 
his established technical skill makes it feel like the match can always go his way. Sure. It's like he's not fully in trouble to the degree you normally get. He's not in the Ricky Morton, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just great tag match here. Lots of energy to it, despite the fact that, as I said, the crowd is so torn on who they want to root for. It's a bit of a weird ending, but it fits the story well. Scott's technical skill wins the day over the Road Warrior's power. I just wish, like I said, it wasn't quite so highlighted by Animal lifting the Scott for the Doomsday device in a way he's never done before or since. <laughs> but still a really, really fun match. This match, I have to say, was actually so fun to watch that I regularly forgot that I was supposed to be taking notes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'd, I'd watch watch like a minute of it and be like, oh, crud, I was supposed to be typing that. <laughs> and after Rewind, didn't mind doing that at all because I got to see it again. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> it's interesting seeing a match like this because a lot of times when there's a match that you really want to see happen... And they're often not as good as you think they're going to be. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, well, something go wrong. I'm going to be injured or something. In this case, I think actually delivered. For it's nice to see that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's also interesting that they gave it. They actually gave it a conclusive finish. That's true. Where normally you get, you know, this. Oh, it's a dream match. We never get to see these guys fight, and they get a count out or they get uh, accidental DQ or they uh, brawl of the back. So yeah. An enemy of both guys will come down to the ring and hit one of them. Something will always interrupt it where you don't actually get it. Mm-hmm. Or they don't actually have to tell you who wins. But in this one, they actually told you. Yes, the Steiners beat the Road Warriors. Yeah. Do you think the tournament is what, you know, the formula <laughs> is what keeps everyone in play? I think it's, yeah, it's interesting to think what would have happened if they just were doing this as like just a regular match between the two of them. Would you have gotten an actual ending out of it? Or is it specifically because we're doing the tournament and we can kind of you know, adjust the feeling of the night mm-hmm. with uh, with the scores and everything that you are that you get to see a definitive ending to this. And I don't know, but that's an interesting thought. Yeah. If that's the case, then it it's it's a double bonus. You know, not yeah. only do you yeah. get to f- see some resolution, your guys are still in the um, in the game, even if it's not the ones you're rooting for. Right, yeah. Yeah. Our next match is back to the single side of the night, and we are watching The Great Muta with Gary Hart versus Sting. Neither man has touched up his uh, face paint as they come out. JR and Funk talk about the fact that both of these men need a win. They both lost their first match. Muta sprays green mist in the air and dyes his hand green. They have an interesting, cautious start as they look for openings, and Muta forces Sting back with a quick kick. Muta gets a full Nelson on Sting, but he twists out of it into his own on Muta, who backs him into the corner. Sting breaks and tries to protect himself in case of the usual sort of back elbow or punch, but Muta hits a mule kick instead. Clever. J.R. and Funk build up that Muta's first loss might have shaken him, but Sting probably used more energy in his longer first match. Great commentary there. Yeah, absolutely. Muta gets a headlock takedown, but Sting fights to his feet and they rapidly run the ropes as Muta hits a shoulder block, but Sting fires back with a monkey flip, clothesline, and snap suplex all in moments. Sting smoothly leads into the scorpion deathlock, but Muta scrambles and grabs the ropes before it can be applied. Muta rolls out and takes a walk to get focused. Muta gets back in, and he rakes Sting's eyes. Back body drops, snap mare, and a really fast elbow drop all lead into some kind of amazing double chicken wing arm lock with bridge that looked really, really cool. The fans chant for Sting, and he struggles, then finally forward flips along the ground to land on Muta's chest to break. 
Sting lands rapid strikes in a military press for two, and his own high-jumping elbow drop before grabbing a chin lock. Muta pushes him into the corner and lands shoulder blocks when Sting tries to break. Nice touch, he varies up how he's hit Sting from before, to keep him guessing. Hart tries to tell ref Nick Patrick that Muta can't understand counting in English, so Patrick has to let him see his fingers. I don't buy that for a second, but Patrick gamely tries it. Muta gets Sting down and goes for the moonsault. Sting dodges, but Muta lands on his feet and nails a jumping spin kick to Sting's face. Muta goes back up, but Sting leaps up and hits a drop kick to his face to knock him onto the turnbuckle, then climbs up for a superplex for the three. Sting gets the pinfall win and 20 points. That was a really good match. Um, this is one, like I talked about briefly with the Steiners and Doom, they fought each other before, so there was definitely chemistry there and experience. And obviously in this case, they worked a lot more together than the uh, Steiners and Doom have. They've been feeding on and off like, for half, like half of the year at this point. Yeah. So they have all these matches to build off of and even play off in the story. Like you're talking about where he tries to get out of the corner without uncovering his face up and then he kicks him low. Yeah. Like that's really nice. I also like that Muda goes from Moonsault and when it doesn't hit, he's actually ready and he lands on his feet and then plays off the fact that I'm not going to fall with the same trick twice. Mm-hmm. Of course, he then immediately gets caught trying to do it again, but so that takes a little away from that, but I appreciate that part of it. I definitely liked their chemistry together. It's like it was very clear that they had experience with this. They knew what moves worked. They were willing to try new ones, attacking different angles, trying submission holds. On that submission hold, you noted the one where he hooks the arm swaps over. That was used a lot by Brian Danielson oh, okay. on the indie circuit, and very briefly in his WWE career. It literally uses it once on one of the shows. And the commentator calls it what it's actually called, which is cattle mutilation. <laughs> which what? is weird, I'll grant you. That's the name of the move. Cattle mutilation. Yep. You can it, Google it. It's, yeah. Okay. Maybe Muta's using it now because Sting is Sting is a cow hip. Oh, it, so oh. he's got to mutilate that cattle. Tie it all, it together. all ties together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I will do anything to give meaning to that to that sign from last year. <laughs> I will note that I understand there's a difference between backflipping and landing on your stomach on a guy versus some being thrown off and landing on your back. But I think it's a little funny that a guy whose finishing move is flipping off the top and landing on his body gets taken on by a different move that's going their direction. Yeah, true. You think he'd be the most resistant to a superplex ever. He'd be like, yeah, nothing. <laughs> I don't feel a thing. But no, it takes him down. I don't think it was an intentional storyline thing because Wyndham's not around at this point for a number of weird reasons. But it's notable that Barry, that's Barry Wyndham's finisher well, yeah. before he left and when he comes back. So it's kind of weird seeing Sting do that. This is the most anticipated one when I was looking at the, the, the matches together because I like I wanted to see a new character and I really like Sting. And so I was gonna, like, Muda versus Sting. They both show uh, both speed and power in their own way. Mm-hmm. With Buddha, it's it's probably a little more finessed, and and look, everything looks very fluid. And not to say that Sting, you know, isn't fluid at all. I'm I'm just saying, like both of their styles shine. I I was a big fan of, I guess, cattle mutilation, or uh, <laughs> I was like a, it's it looked like a reverse um, full Nelson, so it was like a fool Nelson or some <laughs> like some sort of arching, uh, overarching thing, but. Um, uh, there's a move that uh, we learned it was it used a half chicken wing and a cross face, and then what you 
what we did is you walk up along the side of the guy and then you instead of bridging yourself to hold them to the mat you actually flipped them over so that they were in a bridge and it was called a surfboard Mm. i know that that one looked a lot more painful for all participants (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but that's what it reminded me of and uh I was really hoping for for Muda mm-hmm. for that one, and and you know I, I I love Sting, so I mean there's no wrong outcome. <laughs> it's it was neat to see some of the creative mat work from Muda because you're you're used to you know that he's good with like the kicks and everything. You got to see that with him and Flair, and he's got the the agility with the with the moonsault and all. But seeing him able to put on this like really interesting creative mat hold as well. He's a very well-rounded wrestler. It feels like. Would you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can see that being a moment that spoke to you with your your wrestling background yourself. That caught your eye. It was uh, that's neat to hear. Yeah. In matches, they actually during the year that we were were taught it, they actually um, banned that move. And <laughs> it, because because uh, if you do it wrong, you can really torque someone's back when you're doing yeah, when, when, because you're laying on them and then if you don't walk far enough up you know when you go to bridge them they can get stuck on the mac and really hurt themselves so yeah so you only do that that move if you're a heel and the ref isn't looking right uh no <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a hard setup but you know it was one of those things like it's not something you would expect to happen so it worked the three or four times we did it in a match oh cool this was a fast-paced, really, really high-energy match between two excellent performers. Great mix of action here, tons of variety, all at high speed the whole way. Considering that both of them have fought once tonight, and I know that Muta's match was short, but let's face it, it was at quite a fast pace too, I really wasn't expecting them to just go full tilt this whole match. I felt like this was one match where I kept getting more out of it as I watched it more times, noticing the subtle points in their performances. Really nice ending, too. Muta learns from his mistake earlier in the night, but Sting is still able to surprise him in another way. It's a showcase for both men, and like you said earlier, Al, I wish this had been Muta's first loss. Mm -hmm. This had the big match feel that that I felt needed. And yeah, if you'd switched this and Flair's match, I would have had a much better feel of, oh, Muta, Muta took his first loss, but man, it was a good match getting there. You know, where with the Flair one, it felt kind of underwhelming. Well, and yeah, and Mudo could, in theory, also be like really hesitant and everything. So the Flair one would even make more more sense that he was winded from this this really big match yeah. with with uh, Sting, and also morally defeated <laughs> from from not being able to adapt. That's a, that's definitely a good point. That it'd give you more reason for Flair being able to take him down so unexpectedly if he's he's shaken up from his first loss and from losing to a guy he's been able to beat a few times, you know. Yeah. We take a brief break and go to the desk with JR and Funk, who note that we've got a three-way tie in the singles competition, with it looking good for everyone but Muta. Cornette and JR discuss that the signers are in the lead in the tag division, but the advantage may be with the Samoans, who haven't wrestled yet, and who no one had time to prepare for since they were the late replacement for the skyscrapers. Good way to use the emergency replacement uh, as part of the actual storyline, I thought. Yeah. They show the the lady backstage that puts the score up on the board back right, there. Right, yeah, I forgot to mention her, yeah. Yeah, so she's doing it as the show goes on. But towards the end of the show, we see they have it digitally up for the crowd in the arena to see. Couldn't you just zoom up to that? Yeah. Like they do many times later? You would think so, yes. 
Cornette predicts that the Steiners will win the tournament, but he's hesitant about it. Funk predicts that Lex Luger will win the singles tournament, and Cornette immediately compliments him on his choice and shakes his hand enthusiastically. <laughs> I do like the bridging commentary that is JR and Bolt segments. Yes. So you're not disconnected like when the where they had the two different arenas and they were coming with two different commentary teams. Everything revolves around him on the show. He is this very reliable voice that just provides straight commentary on things, and then Funk comes in to bring his his commentary and analysis and all, and Cornette comes in to bring his commentary and analysis. So yeah, it works quite well, I think, mm-hmm. uh, I think from that standpoint. JR is both an anchor and a man, but I can't think of a way to combine those <laughs> two into one word. I'll come to you later. Yeah. Sailor. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. JR is Popeye. The seventh match is the Samoans in their first match of the night. That's Fatu and Sam with Sir Oliver Humperdinck, the big kahuna, versus the team of Doom with Woman and Nitron in their last match of the night. JR and Cornette talk up how Doom is really only able to be spoilers at this point. With zero points and the Steiners already at 35, Doom can't possibly win, but they can damage the Samoans' chances. The Samoans do their pre-match ceremony and get booed. I've already made my thoughts clear on that, so I'll leave off. <laughs> Cornette points out that it's Doom's third match and the Samoans' first, so advantage Samoans. Doom won. I'm not sure if we're still basing this off of the number one is whoever starts theory now that Animal's no longer involved, but Doom won starts out against Fatu. They wrestle for control and are pretty evenly matched. Doom gets a body slam, but Fatu gets a running power slam. They trade headbutts, and it dazes both, so their partners tag in. Sam and Doom 2 brawl, and Sam does well at first, but a missed splash off the top rope slows him down, letting Doom 2 and Doom 1 trade off to take solid control. Cornette says that Woman has lit a fire under Doom's mask, which sounds kind of painful. Sounds very painful, yes. (laughs) Sounds like they were misquoting. (laughs) Yeah. Sam fights back intermittently, but the members of Doom tag in and out quickly and keep hold of him as they do. There's some kind of flashes of Anderson tag work there. And Sam really can't get anything going. With the ref stopping Fatu from getting in, Doom double-teams Sam, and at this point I lost track of which Doom was which. So did JR, so I didn't feel as bad. Sam dodges a shoulder block off the second rope to tag Fatu, and Fatu lands rapid punches and a charging flying headbutt for two, but the other Doom saves. Everyone brawls, and Fatu and one Doom knock heads in the melee. Doom goes down, and Fatu wobbles, but Humperdinck quickly reaches in and pushes Fatu on top for the three and twenty points. We get a great, seething, angry look from Woman. She just looks absolutely enraged. <laughs> well, the fact that she was she and her team were just outsmarted by a guy called the Pikahuna really should <laughs> yeah. understandably make you mad. <laughs> This is definitely the weakest of the three Doom matches for me, which is kind of a shame. It's definitely it's slower paced to it overall. I can at least appreciate that you really break on the story that Doom, even though they can't win, is at least showing good teamwork here. Mm-hmm. That they're essentially making the Samoans the faces. I don't know if there actually are faces at this point. I think they're supposed to be heels, but... They get booed during their pre-match ceremony, right, so, so I'm guessing they're the they're heels too, yeah. Okay. I can appreciate at least that they're in a situation where they're both heels, so they go... Let's just make sure that they think one of us is the face. Mm-hmm. So I can at least applaud them for having the chemistry there, even though not none of it really stuck for me. It's not that memorable. I do like the, at least the creativity of the finish. It's weird that they're relying on the headbutt dazing a couple times in one match, though. It's like they only have so many ideas, I guess. 
But at least the way it works is kind of it's just creative and interesting. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, my issue is normally I like a match a lot, and then when there's a screwy or shady finish, it takes away from me. In this case, it's actually the most interesting part of the match for me, so it's, <laughs> it's a fun invert, I guess. <laughs> it's all about the variety. Yeah. I liked that they both did the similar tactics and uh, like, oh, who's really tagged in kind of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. you tried to pretend that I want to almost call them assassins because it's, it's the same premise. <laughs> True. Doom or its sequel, uh, you know, sometimes uh, don't tag in and they just let the other person take over. So there's always a fresh person in the on the mat. The Samoans, they're always picking some fight with the ref, so they never he never sees it. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like he's totally blind. You know, there was some good athleticism from both sides, but it just, it, it didn't really have any real excitement for me. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, one, this is the two teams that we're least familiar with, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And two, they're both heels, so as much as you can do to make one of them seem more like the face team for the match, you know, they're both getting booed by the crowd, basically. So it's hard to get into a match like this. I thought it was pretty standard, nothing exceptional, but it was nice to see Doom try a few different things that I hadn't seen from them in earlier matches. The holding onto the leg, tagging in and out more frequently, sneaking in a quick tag while being hit. I kind of honestly was wondering if the Andersons had a talk with them backstage. We're like, hey, you guys should try some of this stuff. They had some good double team spots. I don't feel like I got to see a lot of what the Samoans could do. We got very little at all from Fatu, and Sam mostly spends the match selling for Doom. Yeah. They don't really get to showcase much, probably a means of conserving their energy, but it does make for a bit of a one-sided match. I was honestly surprised when they won this one, but like for you, Al, it was a good kind of surprise. Yeah. The ending spot is pretty smart, and I liked the sneaky quick shove that Humperdinck did to get his team to win. It was one of those spots where everything has to be timed perfectly, and it actually was, so yeah. it worked really well. So I didn't mind this one, but I can't say I'll remember it much. That that ending spot might stick with me for a bit, but the rest of the match is kind of, eh, it's there. Well, yeah, so it's sort of a combination. They get a team we're least familiar with. They're both heels. And at this point, it's anti-climax. What happens to Doom anyways? True. Because even if, hypothetically, they do try to spoil a victory for the Samoans, they still have two more matches, so it's not definitive in any way for them at all. Right. It, it's, it'd be one thing if Doom was acting as the spoilers for a face team. Yeah. That, that where, you know, it's like the Steiners are in this match against Doom and you're like, oh, Doom could hurt the Steiners' chances or the Legion of Doom's chances for later in the night. That'd be something where I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a great storyline buildup. But it's the team that is, is a heel team anyway. So it's kind of like you haven't given me a reason to root for either team, really, is the problem with yeah. this one. In that scenario, there could have been a really good spot where... There's a situation where Doom, uh, the Legion of Doom <laughs> or the Steiners yes. actually distract the ref so that the other team is not disqualified <laughs> so they can get more points by actually trying to pin them. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Match number eight is Lex Luger versus Ric Flair as the singles tournament continues. Luger gets some cool spinning pyro on the stage. Mm-hmm. Flair didn't bother to put the robe on for a second entrance. It's kind of weird to see Flair come down to the ring just kind of strolling and not having a robe. Yeah, it's true. It's kind of takes a lot out of his entrance. JR mentions that they've got the cameras mic'd so you can hear the action in the ring. It's, it was kind of weird to hear that. I, I was like, isn't that a normal thing? Don't you always do that? I can I can normally hear what's going on in the ring just fine. But 
Oh, They're trying right. to justify the the yelling. Yeah, I was gonna say either either way, good idea to mic up the Luger selling. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, he is aware Luger's gonna be super loud. Like, oh yeah, yeah they're they're mic now. <laughs> That's it. Funk gives Flair a lot of respect and says he took his best shot, but Flair is still at the top. We start off with round two of Luger versus the crowd, as Jr. and Funk again discuss Flair normally needing like twenty to twenty five minutes to get into gear. Hashtag Greg Valentine, apologies to OSW Review. Yeah. Luger uses his raw power to overcome Flair's technical skill at first. The crowd hurls abuse at him, and a guy in the crowd tries a muscle pose at Luger. You are not winning that particular comparison, buddy. No. When Flair manages to get some leverage, Luger tugs on his hair to put him back down, which gets Flair so angry Luger actually scampers for the corner. Chops break Luger's momentum, and Flair starts working his arm as we get some wonderful, loud Luger selling particularly when Flair grabs a hammerlock on the ground and starts driving his knees into Luger's arm. Luger briefly breaks free, but Flair hits a nice double underhook suplex before going back to the arm work. Frustrated and in pain, Luger howls increasingly loudly, and it looks like Flair just has him mastered. But at the same time, Flair can't seem to do much to actually get him down. He keeps maneuvering him into pins with ease, but can't hold him down for the three. He ends up just trying to take away Luger's strength, and time ticks away. Luger finally manages to power through and drops Flair throat first on the top rope, and takes control with really aggressive stomps and a big clothesline. It's his game now as Flair's too dazed to find a comeback, and Luger hits a military press and keeps up the beating. Flair gets a comeback after a countered suplex and counters a whip into the corner with a quick flip out of the ring and run along the ropes before coming off the top rope, but gets nailed with a clothesline because the top rope will never be kind to Ric Flair. (laughs) (laughs) It was awesome. Yeah. Things get more even, and Flair works in his usual thrown off the top rope spot for good measure. Luger tries a big elbow drop, but Flair dodges. Belly to back suplex takes Luger down, and Flair gets the figure four out of nowhere. Luger sells like someone is stabbing knives in his legs, <laughs> writhing around on the mat and screaming, but time runs out, and the match ends as a draw. Five points each. I thought it was another really strong match. Um, they have advantage, obviously, of being the main event, if you don't count the Bunkhouse Brawl, which they didn't fund the show. Other than briefly mentioning over the PA, and they didn't cut out. <laughs> during a promo. Yes, during a promo. <laughs> but yeah, being the main event of Stark 88, and obviously they had a, I think they have matches between mm-hmm. those two, I'm not sure. They definitely have matches in the future. I'm sure they've had some house show stuff at the yeah. very least, so. Well, that's the thing too, is that I'm pretty sure the 88 show was built as Luger's last chance. He right, a yeah. promo about that. So it's interesting that they get in their shot at him part of the tournament with nothing fisty on the line, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. The thing I really liked was that Luger really embraced his heel side, especially more now. It's kind of, I don't know, it's almost kind of easy to be a heel against Sting because he's so likable. Yes. Whereas he's facing a relatively untested face flare. True, yeah. So he goes all out, whether it's the hair pulling, eye poking, the yelling at the crowd. All stuff he does is really good. It's really a good showcase for heel Luger. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's a pretty good showcase for Faith Flair, which is not really appreciated that much. Yeah, yeah, true. There's a long to the time where just a super heel for... Like, most of the show, he's even super heel. It's like the only... This is the only, the was first, only the first... Only the first Starcade that he was a face, yeah. So, yeah, it's like five years straight. Yeah. Like a heel with some redeeming qualities. <laughs> first show, he was a face. The second show, I'd say he was kind of still midway, but makes a solid heel turn during the middle of that match with Dusty. For sure, yeah. And then, yeah, he's he's really heavily heel 
very uh very strongly and very like lunatic fringe heel at times. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the other thing too is that so now that F- Flair's a face and Luger's a heel, he has to live up to the standard of heel Flair against right. Flair, which is definitely hard. And obviously, a lot of people have failed trying to be the next Ric Flair, like um, Buddy Landell, especially. <laughs> Uh, I don't miss Buddy Landell. <laughs> I don't hate the Buddy Landell personally, or any of his match. It just he was weird imitation of Ric Flair for no reason, and it was no payoff because he left the company. It's a weird non sequitur as a whole for the company. I wish obviously it had a clear finish, but that in mind, I understand they're going for this complicated thing of the points and trying to keep this dynamic going. There's some poor guy in the back with like a flow chart trying to make sure these points were exactly right and get these matches that way. I forget which match is in, it's in, but JR does joke that you have to be a mathematician to calculate where everyone's position is now. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost a shame that Dusty's not around because I wouldn't picture Dusty in the oh, back with like the little, little tiny glasses and like uh, maybe um, an abacus trying to do this. Instead, I guess it's Arn Anderson and Oli playing with the calculator like the uh, chimps from Tesla West Space Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great visual. But yeah, I really, I really, it's really liked Luger in this. Um, his selling is really strong and ridiculous, but it really works to help Flair look so strong. Mm-hmm. One thing I really, really liked too was right near the end, Flair's a figure four on. He is selling like, like I said, there's like there's knives in his legs. He knows that time is running out. And before, I think there's legitimately time running out this time. Always such close to that. Mm-hmm. It's better than before, where it's like ten minutes and it's the match is over. And five minutes cut out. So it's like counting down, and as it's going towards like three, two, one, he has his shoulder down and pulls it up just before the one, both the ref and on the count. Yes. Which And so dramatically in fashion. Really, really good timing it. on that. Yeah. I was really impressed by that. Yeah. It's nice to see a, a rematch and uh, uh, Luger wear himself out from throwing Rick around the, the ring. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, yeah, yeah. You know, you can only lift someone over your head so many times and throw them off the off the ropes. That rope spot where um, he goes right into the clothesline, I, I thought he was actually going to be injured. Because oh, his, wow. His, it looks like his legs come out from underneath him and he just, <laughs> he just falls down. Like he's all forward motion except for his jawline <laughs> continues <laughs> on the bottom part of his body. It's almost a Luger line. <laughs> yeah. It was a very good match. I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, those mics on those cameras must have been tuned up a little bit because <laughs> it was loud. Whoa! <laughs> oh! <laughs> yeah. Yep. But, I mean, like, it, it would be, I, I don't know, it would be kind of gross if, if you didn't have a picture to go with it. You just listen to the sounds. <laughs> yeah. The finish was... A little lackluster, but you know it is what it is. And uh, I would have, I would have bought the the knives and and the. He actually looked like he was flopping like a you know like a fish out of water kind yeah. of thing because he actually moved them across the ring towards the middle, not towards any of the ropes. I, I would have bought it more if he was working his legs, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. not that that arm the whole time. And and to be sure, like like. Uh, Flair's um, handstands and then going into the knee looked pretty impressive. So, you know, it, it would yeah. make more sense if he did... Su- I know he doesn't have like a figure four thumb war or whatever, you know, arm <laughs> version, you know, some sort of arm lock. You, you got to end on a signature move. It just didn't yeah. make as much sense. I, I would have liked if he if it, if it they did something like in the middle of his like, okay, the arm's not 
he's still throwing me off the off the you know top turnbuckle. Maybe I should start going for his legs. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the one big flaw of this match is that you get this terrific Luger sell of the figure four at the end of the match, but there's no reason that the figure four should be hurting him that badly without without Flair doing any of his normal setup for it. And you see Flair do the normal setup for it earlier in the night and later in the night, but you just don't get that setup in this match. It feels like they forgot a couple steps or something like that. Or even if Flair had showed like some sort of desperation, I mean, like you know, like he he put the hold in quick, you know. Yeah. But if if he looked like he worked himself up just before doing it, it would be like, okay, he's really, you know. It's like yeah, if you did, if you had a sense that he was putting it on harder than usual or something, yeah. Yeah, this was a really really nice match. Aside from that, kind of the reversed alignment version of the match they had last time. Mm-hmm. Flair gets to be the canny, clever, technically skilled face who keeps ahead of the big, angry, powerful heel. Flair gets to do a lot of damage, but Luger just has too much power to go down, and it makes Flair look really skilled, but Luger gets to show off just by being able to power free of some things where others might have to fight for leverage or find the right angle. The announcers did a really good job playing that up, I thought. Flair runs rings around Luger and stays in control easily, and he can make any pin or hold happen, but he can't actually keep Luger down for the three or make him give up. Luger's too powerful. I thought it fit really nicely with the announcer's comments about Flair being more comfortable with longer matches. He just needs more time to actually chip away at a guy as powerful as Luger. Other than the the problems with setting up for the figure four, I think this was an absolutely terrific match and a really cool, like, reversed story to see as a rematch from the previous year. thing I'll say in the figure four is I think, especially at this point, you're supposed to just believe that as soon as it's on, it's a very painful, damaging hold. So you must just be able to accept that he does that quickly. I understand he normally does do setup for it. And it wouldn't. Himself. I don't think it would bother me if he didn't do the setup for it at the other times he puts the figure four on tonight. But against Muta, he he does the setup for it. Against Sting later, he does the setup for it. So this is the only time that we don't get the figure four setup. And what's really weird is is Luger is 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 really overselling in the beginning, and then there's like a five second period where you know Rick is still looking like he's working the hold, and he just lays there, <laughs> he's passed out. The idea of the figure four, I think, um, someone I think does actually talk about this on commentary, not on this show, but on some other ones. If you lay back, if you're the guy taking the hold, if you lay back, that does relieve the pressure a bit in some way, oh. you know, in the weird fictional justification of the figure four. But of course, if you do that, you're risking being pinned because your shoulders are down. It works as a spot, but it is kind of like, wait, what's the actual physics of this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a very, very minor point on the match. No, I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I don't think it takes much away at all. One thing is I had that issue with the previous match where Flair spends like 20 minutes uh, attacking the upper body and the arms and then goes, oh, chair, and does that. Yeah. So it actually bothers me less because it's, uh, it's so much quicker because in the last part of that and it just goes in the sequence of he has to be down you're doing the figure four. Hmm. Our ninth match is back to the tag side and it's the Samoans versus the Steiner brothers. The Samoans music starts up with them about halfway down the ramp. Great timing, guys. Yeah. Rick seems odd as the two Steiners walk down towards the ring. He seems to try to slide down the entrance ramp and just seems in kind of a playful mood. 
Scott steals a child from the crowd and sets him in a chair by the ring, giving him the title belt to hold. Rick steals another child near the ring and has him hold his belt. Cornette jokes that the kids' reading level is probably three or four levels higher than the Steiners, and that they look better with the belts, too. (laughs) (laughs) Those letter jackets. Yeah. The teams face off, crawling on the ground, and Rick comes over to ride on Scott's back. Scott gives him kind of a, what-the-heck-dude look. Rick starts making fun of the Samoan ceremony, doing his own version of it whenever they try and do it. That continues in the early going as Sam tries to fight Rick, but Rick keeps mocking him. A Steiner line rips out one of Sam's hair braids, so Rick tucks in his headgear as the Samoans look to take a walk, but Humperdinck convinces them to return. Fatu trades clothesline for Steiner line with Rick and swaps places with Sam, unnoticed by the ref but caught by the crowd. Rick and Sam face off on all fours, and JR wonders if someone spiked Rick's elbow. So I guess it's not just me that thinks Rick's acting a little bit weird here. <laughs> For sure, yeah. Tag to Scott, who gets a Steiner line and a neat pin where he moves from a front face lock to grabbing the leg to flipping over Sam into the pin. Tag to Rick, and he gets caught in the Samoan corner, but Sam accidentally hits Fatu, and the two argue while Rick tries to egg them on. They ignore him and make peace. Tag back to Scott, and things finally, finally pick up a bit as Sam grabs the ropes to dodge the Frankensteiner, and Scott lands hard. Sam chucks him out through the middle rope, and Fatu dumps Scott crotch first on the barricade to put him solidly in face imperiled roll. The Samoans trade off beating Scott down with headbutts, thrust kicks, and strikes, and double team Scott, and switch off unnoticed by the ref whenever Rick accidentally distracts the ref, which is often. That also earns Scott a chuck over the top rope at one point. Things slow down a bit with bear hugs from Fatu and Sam in turn, but a nice power slam by Sam makes up for that. Scott hits the Frankensteiner to a monster crowd pop, but he's too hurt, and Fatu manages to tag Sam to block the tag. Scott gets free after a missed falling headbutt, but Sam manages to stop another Scott tag, but Rick comes in anyway and hits Steiner lines to both Samoans. Everybody in, and in the melee, Scott throws one of the Samoans over the top rope, but the ref sees it. The Samoans win by DQ and get 10 points. The Steiners are done with 35 points total. That's bullcrap. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. Hey, that was my line. <laughs> to, to the ending or to the match as a whole? No, well, no, the ending, definitely. He just stood up. He didn't even, like, you know, really, like, yeah. let, you know, he just happened to be down when he hit him, and then he stood up and just tumbled over. Yeah, well, that, that's how it happens. Well, I know, but it's not like he, like, you know, intentionally did anything. Nope, that was absolutely clearly intentional. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's... As Bob mentioned in the recap, there's a really weird slow start to this match. I don't understand what's going on. I think when we were watching before, I was reading comparisons to that terrible end of the wrestling show where Jake Roberts is doing bad personal issues backstage and is not in condition to perform. And they he, they try to egg him on to try and perform, and it never quite gets there. Yeah, his obviously is was a clear issue. Rick's, I don't know what's going on with him. It was just. I don't, I don't quite yeah, I get it. I feel like they're going for a character thing where they're like going back to kind of his goofy character from last year, but it just doesn't quite come off right to me. I don't know. No, and well, it's weird that it's the third match of the show. Yeah. That suddenly he just has a reversion, I guess. I don't know. He got hit in the head, you know. It yeah. Happens. Um, yeah, after that, it definitely gets better. Um, their actual interactions is good. They do a good job of Scott Steiner's face peril. He's not tagged. He's not tagged really well. The parts in the middle definitely show what the Steiners are good at. Um, the Samoans, 
They don't again, nothing bad. They just don't really impress me all that much. Mm-hmm. They're there and they're competent, but there's no nothing extra they bring to the ring that I don't know that someone else couldn't also brought to the ring. So I have to dispute a little bit of the finish part from the recap. So what happens is the guy runs at Scott Steiner. There are briefly looks before the spot at him, then looks back over at Rick and the other Samoan. The fall happens, and Big Kahuna guy goes over there and starts yelling at the ref who walks over. Ah, uh, okay. I missed that. Kahuna is the one who's like pointing and yelling at the ref, telling them they threw over, and the other someone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what happened. And I was <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> sudden super-believing ref is sudden. <laughs> yeah. It's not Nick Patrick, so... I don't think it's a trust issue. That's, I think, the ref we dubbed uh, the Old West Saloon ref because he's a very nice big mustache. Yeah, true, yeah. <laughs> the saloon owner in Old Western you'd watch with John Wayne. Yeah, I really don't like the that finish they put on there at all. I've never really liked the top rope DQ thing, especially notable that they have the heels do it and the ref doesn't see it. Though I guess it's better than the times when the ref does see it and they tell me because the and now just make us some excuses. Yeah. So like, uh, at least this is another point where the top rope DQ thing actually does matter. Yeah. But I'd still prefer that it didn't exist as a rule. Yeah, it's when you, it's when you get one point for doing it and then lose a thousand points for doing it. <laughs> yes. I forget what the psychology is, but you have to do like 13 nice things to uh, make up for one negative thing. <laughs> yeah. So maybe there's some psychology here. Yeah. Loss aversion. I don't know. Childhood problems. <laughs> There's lots of hugging, and they try to hug it out in, in this one. I was kind of hoping they cut back to the kid that they ripped out of the crowd. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, like, we, like, don't, we don't actually see the kids again after that initial moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, this match was all over the place. The ending was was, was just bullcrap. And uh, <laughs> sorry. I would have liked to see a little bit more variety I, I, you know I would like to see what this uh, Samoan SWAT team could do and I did like when they even when they resorted to just the bear hugs and stuff because you know I, I love those so much <laughs> it really did stop the signers from, from doing anything like there were, mm-hmm. they didn't have some experience or some you know alt counter in, involved that could get them out of it right away it was just sort of okay I have to sit and deal and I thought that was at least somewhat you know balancing do you feel like you got a little bit of a storyline of the Steiners are too tired to maneuver the way they normally do because they've had two matches already? Or, Well, I mean, that and I actually like, you know, I thought that the Samoan tag team was probably a little bit stronger than them. I know they don't look necessarily like, you know, they seem to be a little more dominant, you know, mm-hmm. when, when they were actually just doing strength versus strength. It was still nice to see the Steiners, like, take this big person and just pull them over and put them in a quick pin yeah. and then the ref is just totally oblivious the whole time and maybe gets one count instead of two or three maybe I'm a little forgiving I don't know <laughs> I thought it was a good matchup it just wasn't a good match <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's a fairly good way of putting it I think there's there's potential to this mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. much like the Doom LOD match earlier it doesn't feel like you actually get to see everything this match could be yeah for me the match got pretty good but it definitely did not start that way it's <laughs> a sure. really really slow start there's a lot of stalling a lot of joking around i said i don't know if they were going for a character bit but rick doesn't do much more than goof around in this match up until the ending 
Scott, for his part, got to show off some interesting moves again, and he made a good face in peril once the match turned against the Steiners. And once the match reached that section, it kept moving for the most part, bear hugs accepted. It got almost comical, though, how often Rick ended up accidentally distracting the refs so the Simones could do something nefarious. It's true. <laughs> yeah. There was some good action to be had here, and it got pretty entertaining near the end, but I found it tough to watch until it got there. Too slow to start, too much goofing around, and too much focus on the ref distractions. It was a really disappointing match to me. This was coloring the show badly as a whole for me after watching this one. I was just I was just like, oh, this is kind of what I was afraid of. Things starting at this point to really like tilt downward. Mm-hmm. So... I was I was feeling down after this match. So was it, you know, the Steiners are the tag team champions at this point. So in the two previous matches, they win in not super conclusive fashion with the with the count of victory, but then a surprise actual fairly inclusive victory over the Legion of Doom, mm-hmm. really strong longtime contenders and briefly tag champions, and then they lose via DQ to a team that was pretty much an afterthought up until they're put in the tournament. Yeah. And fortunately, it's not much more than after that, after the tournament. So it's kind of weird that they're the ones that get the victory over them. Yeah, it's kind of like, why can't you just have the Steiners win? I guess for the scores really is is the answer to that question. You can't have them just have two strong victories or they have, it's 15 points for the first one, so they'd be at 55 points, Mm -hmm. which is close to insurmountable. So uh, so you you, you do have to do something with them but it is it does feel kind of weird just how it happens yeah yeah i could see if you reversed it and doom had the dq victory over them that would sort of keep their feud going and not give them the decisive victory I can over see them that, yeah and this moment of team which nothing against them but they weren't a major factor in the company at this point i kind of half wonder if this was just like something close to the planned finish of uh steiners versus skyscrapers match and mm-hmm. they just kept the general idea of it could be yeah, so I don't know. At this point, you said that you felt this, the show was starting to go downhill. Do you think that that has to do with the formatting of the show? Is eight at eight matches, <laughs> is it too much? Yeah, I, I, I would say I was starting to feel the length of the show or the number of matches, especially with, as I mentioned last year, um, I think there's a certain number of tag matches that you can do before I start really, really feeling the tag formula. And yeah, we've definitely reached that point where I'm like, I'm, I just, I can predict at a certain point what's going to happen next in a tag match because they're all using the basic tag match. And aside from the Steiners versus LOD one that kind of changed it up a little bit yeah. or, uh, or had it more fluid, it's, it's just kind of at a certain point, you're just like, okay, he's going to get in trouble here. Okay, nope, he's gonna get cut, gonna get cut off, gonna get cut off, gonna get cut off. Uh, okay, now he's gonna make it. you know it's you with them not doing any gimmick stuff. I was really starting to feel the tag side, especially. Yeah, you need um, definitely gimmicks to mix it up, or you need teams that are just very very different. Mm-hmm. A strong team like say Public Enemy could um, could do don't, that. Don't make me hurt you. <laughs> Don't make me hurt you. Well, yeah. I was I was talking more on like just the show in general. Like I try to think of it as like a meal, a seven course meal. You know, where the um, Muda versus Flair is an appetizer because it's only two minutes long. <laughs> it's an amuse bouche. At this point, you have all these big flavors, and you've had all these special things. Then at this point, like you're like, all right, I've done all these mental 
uh, flips and loops and everything, and I put all these matches together in my head. All right, at this point, is am I start to mix these seven courses that are in front mm-hmm. of me, and you know, I hope there's something still tasty, yeah, out there. Um, so I, I'm just saying, like you've, there's a lot of new nuance, but at this point, you're just so saturated with these matchups that I think, even though there's still great stuff to to come, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're kind of worn down at least mentally or drained. Yeah. I think I would have been feeling better if this match had been better still, but I still would have been, like you were saying, kind of at a point where I'm like, man, there's a lot of matches on this show. <laughs> One, enough to match, you can probably address it. Has there been a match so far, as far as the tag side of it, that didn't end with everyone getting in the ring and then going to a finish somehow? The the first match was everyone getting out of the ring and going to the finish somehow. Well, they got in the ring yeah, first yeah, and no. then went out. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the signal that, for... that kind of is just how it's worked, yeah. It's it's very formulaic. Yeah. The signal for when you go to the closing sequence is everyone gets in the ring. What you do from there can vary, but everyone gets in the ring and then mm-hmm. what's going on? Oh, clothesline or this or that. Yeah. Yeah. There's some better versions of it and some lesser versions of it, but you start recognizing it as as all kind of the same thing. Yeah. Our tenth match is Lex Luger versus the Great Muta. Muta has not fixed his face paint, and there's little left. Luger is still selling the leg and walks gingerly down the ramp. Nice touch. Even looks hard for him to get through the ropes. The doubting, worried look on his face speaks volumes. Luger does not think he can win. They also make a point in commentary that he doesn't normally use the steps to get into the ring as well. Yeah, yeah. He's very careful getting in. Yeah, it's a, it's a very nice approach, I thought. Luger tries to use his power but Muta clearly notices the injured leg and discusses it for a moment with Gary Hart. Luger gets a few good hits, but his leg goes out on a leapfrog. And it begins. Luger, Muta systematically takes Lex Luger's leg apart for the next several minutes. He lands hard kicks, he wrenches on the leg, he grabs knee holds, he puts on a single leg crab, he turns that into an inverted Indian deathlock. He focuses absolutely entirely on Luger's leg. Luger can do absolutely nothing to defend himself. He can barely even stand with the aid of the ropes, and that only until Muta lands a single kick again to knock him down for more abuse. Luger's rare bits of offense... JR nicely notes that he's having to stay low and can't use his power because he can't stand, are interrupted fast, and he limps everywhere, leans on the ropes, crawls along the ground, begs for moments of mercy, and even very nicely stumble runs on whips to the ropes. A larger comeback in the later match gets some actual cheers from the crowd, and let's remember for a moment that the crowd spent most of his prior matches hurling abuse at him. Muta stops it with a spin kick and a great drop kick, but Luger hurls himself at Muta for a great clothesline to keep going. 
His leg still gives him trouble as he fights, and Muta gets a sunset flip. Luger tries to grab the ropes to stop himself from going over, but ref Nick Patrick stops that with a uh, wonderfully dramatic kick. <laughs> <laughs> one of my most hated spots in wrestling. It's, it's, so one, of mo- it's one of my favorite spots in wrestling because it's so stupid. <laughs> Luger escapes and manages a power slam, then signals for the rack. He starts to try to lift Muta, but stops and tries to get Patrick's attention. The camera misses it, but JR tells us later that Gary Hart was distracting Patrick and Luger was trying to get his attention again. Luger turns around right into Muta's mist, but Patrick sees it and calls for the bell. Luger wins by DQ and gets 10 points. Muta is done with 0 points, and Luger is done with 35. I liked it. It was a very a hard-hitting and loud match. <laughs> that was my, <laughs> my short summary of the match. But no, I really liked... Um, Luger's commitment to the character and the selling because it's carried over from the previous match mm-hmm. it's what I think is maybe the point why they do the figure four so late in the match oh yeah yeah and so they can then go into this and because you can sell an arm it's easy to sort of work around going oh my arm's okay for a second whereas you, if you commit to the leg you got to really commit to the leg mm-hmm. you have to stumble run like he said you have to crawl there's a great bit where he's been kicked a bunch of times and the ref asks him he's like 116 of the match and you, you see, like, he's, maybe he's thinking about it, but he can't. Yeah. I appreciated that his super Luger selling, as funny as it can be, really actually helps the match in a lot of ways, not just for our enjoyment as sort of a silly sort of thing, because it really does build up Muda's kicks as being both precise and extremely dangerous. Mm-hmm. He keeps kicking the leg, and he's attacking the leg, and Luger makes sure everyone in the far back row... Hell, people in different cities probably can tell he's he's leg is a pain. <laughs> Some poor cosmonauts. Go back like, to that uh, sailors and ships at sea. Uh. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Some poor cosmonaut is distracted while he's trying to like fix the lens because he hears Luger yelling. It's interesting because yeah, like you said, it, he gets like actual face sort of compassion from the crowd because he he seems like he's generally in trouble. They should be eating it up that this guy who's been cocky and posing and yelling at them. He's getting some up in, but he does it so well that they almost go, wow, I feel bad for this guy. And he... Yeah, it's, there's an interesting transition like halfway through the match. Right around the time that Muta puts the Indian Deathlock on, they're cheering Muta. Yeah. Yeah, they're really glad to see Luger hurting. Then around, I don't know, like a couple minutes after that, I started to hear people say, come on, Luger. Yeah, yeah I heard it too. And yeah, and you're just like, wow, something's changed here. Like, he's done such a performance of injury that he's earned sympathy for himself yeah. from a crowd that hated his guts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Muda, it, lo- it looks like he's torturing him. I mean, like, yeah. he's play- yeah. playing with him. And so there might be some sympathy or, or you know, p- not, I don't want to say it's pity, pity cheering, but at the same time, they do want to see him, you know, not be in pain. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right on that. It's like Muda is so vicious going after him that you come around to me like, oh man, th- he's just like enjoying this. And you, you you stop being okay with Luger being hurt. Oh, I didn't, I didn't wish this on him, you know? Yeah. Right. He did not even, he deserves that. Yeah. And I have a new favorite, like submission hold or whatever. What is the, what's the thing? Like a, a reverse Indian? They call it an inverted Indian death lock. The one where he like folds himself backwards over him and, puts a chin lock on while his legs are wrapped up, yes, you mean? Yeah. Yes. 
that was a really cool hold, yeah. Yeah. I think it shows off his flexibility not only <laughs> as in what he can do, but I mean actual literal flexibility. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so he's doing hapkido and doing all kinds of other other things and I think it highlighted Muda a lot and uh, I enjoyed it, but I at the same time like they work really well. Like it's it's a little weird to see that vicious tormenting side of where he's just freaking out you know like trying to do the katas and stuff just to get luger to back into the corner and then you know hug the turnbuckle for, for yeah. dear life and so i think it was a good interaction for me i don't i don't see the point of, of just getting disqualified at the end yeah i think the idea there it doesn't come off right but i think the idea there is that muta is trying to spray him with the mist while the ref's back is turned Mm -hmm. and that will give him the win but Luger successfully calls Patrick's attention just before that happens so Patrick turns around and sees the mist spray spot but yeah because the camera angle is not ideal we pretty much miss everything that made that spot make sense so yeah um, camera angles are important like him, I do take a little issue with the DQ. I I understand when you start watching replay and you re- figure out what they're going for. The story of that's pretty interesting, and obviously it builds up to Luger not having an overwhelming point lead for the final match. But yeah, how sudden that is is still disappointing. Yeah, yeah. Now is is Muda supposed to be a heel? Yes. yes. Okay. He's solidly a heel. It's just the crowd's treating him at first like a face because they're because he's beating the ever loving crud out of Lex Luger, who they've right. hated until they decide, Oh my gosh, this is going too far. <laughs> well it wouldn't have been better. Like I thought it when I saw it, I was like, Well maybe he's you know, it's towards that end of that fifteen minute this is one of the matches that didn't end like at right at the last seconds, you know. Like a lot of the other ones mm-hmm. tonight. Uh, Muda's only the other one that only had two minutes, but I thought it was it would be better if it was during a pin because it looks like Luger's getting back into action and you know he's either ignoring his injury or, or making a turnaround. It would have been better if Muda was like getting pinned and he sprayed him in the face. I could see that. Yeah, just like to a like, like you're not move. you're not going to get twenty points. You know, like I, I'm it's my last match. I'm going to limit you from going forward. Luger looks like he's going to win, and Muda doesn't want that. Right. If he gets DQ'd, he costs Luger some points anyway. Maybe I'm reading into it too much. <laughs> no, 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 I think it kind of works for me the way that it happened. It's just. I think if I'd actually seen all the stuff that JR talks about on camera, I would have been okay with it because it'd be Luger in an odd way overcoming Muda's attempt to cheat. But yeah, just with the camera missing 90% of what you needed to make that spot make sense, it it doesn't work too well. Yeah, this was not so much a match as a beatdown. Luger, largely unable to defend himself, just takes repeated leg abuse for the majority of this match. It it's the kind of thing that shouldn't work as a as a match, but it totally did. Yeah. Muta looked vicious and got really creative in how he punished Luger's legs with some really interesting holds in between his great kicks. Luger did a phenomenal job selling the leg, and mm-hmm. he never slipped up on it really at all. He kept it up even when he was getting some spurts of offense. Um, the, the clothesline he does, I loved. He like actually gives this really dramatic clothesline, and he collapses afterwards. Yeah, yeah. It's just great moments like that. Like you were saying, I know we give Luger crap for the noises he makes while selling and how over-the-top it is and all, and there's plenty of that to be heard here. Sure. But it's an excellent, excellent performance right from the entrance all the way to the finish. 
Luger reacts in every way like someone with a badly injured leg. And that's a type of comment I've only made for one other person over the course of the show, and that's Ricky Steamboat. Mm-hmm. So and mm-hmm. you're, when you're selling being compared to Ricky Steamboat, you're doing a good job. Yeah. Yeah, ending's a bit awkward, but overall, this is such an unusual match, but it's a really good one with great performances by both performers. In space, you can only hear Luger scream. <laughs> True. Yeah, I, 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 I want to just like to, to give this match even more of a compliment, you know, with what I said about the Steiners versus Samoans match and how dra- that dragged me down quite a bit. This popped me right back up. I was just like, oh, this undid all the harm that that match did in the show. I was immediately back into things with this uh, with this performance. That's how strong it was. We had that with, um, I think it was 84, where it's not so great. And then we have, I think it was Tully and Tully and uh, Steamboat. Steamboat. Yeah. Where your notes uh, notes that time, I recall, so you had written, thank you, Steamboat. Yes, on the that is correct. So, thank you, Luca Ramuda. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the 11th match is the Samoans versus the Road Warriors. This is the final match of the tag tournament. So just to go over the scores for a moment... The Steiners have 35, the Road Warriors have 20, Doom has 0, and the Samoans have 30. So the Steiners are in the lead, but not only does it matter who wins this match, it matters how. If the Road Warriors draw or they win by DQ, they're out of the running, while a countout means that they tie the Steiners. If the Samoans draw, they'll tie, while any victory for them is enough to win the tournament. We're told that a tie means that the two tied teams face off once more. After how the Steiner Samoans match went last time, I'm certainly against a draw here. <laughs> <laughs> Don't really want to see that one again. <laughs> All joking aside, as I mentioned at the start of the show, I really like that concept. The different finish types really, really matter here. Yeah. This is the first time that we get the Road Warriors music in their entrance. <laughs> and it's uh it's Iron Man. It's just blatantly, unquestionably, the guitar riff from Iron Man. It's not oh, yeah. even the, it's not even enough to call it a ripoff. It's it's the actual exact riff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they ain't hired Jimmy Hart yet to to make sound alike for everything. Yeah. Soon. Animal and Fatu start, and Fatu quickly lands a pile driver, but Animal just springs right back to his feet and clotheslines Fatu down. Hawk and Sam get in, and Sam yells at the crowd as LOD chants erupt. They brawl, and Hawk gets a back body drop, but Sam answers with an inverted atomic drop, holds on, and muscles through to a suplex variant in an impressive spot. Hawk no-sells a headbutt and just stares Sam down. Animal in, and he does well against Sam and then Fatu, including a surprisingly casual power slam, until Fatu ducks down as Animal charges in and ends up headbutting him in the crotch. I'm pretty sure that was storyline this time, though Animal does give some very heavy groans, and Fatu sells his head and neck and tags Sam. Sam uses punches, chokes, and rope chokes to keep Animal reeling, but takes time to yell at the crowd before a splash off the rope, so Animal dodges and tags Hawk. Hawk quickly hits a nice flying shoulder block for two, but Fatu saves. All four brawl. There's that spot again. Check. And Hawk gets thrown out of the ring, but quickly climbs back up to the top turnbuckle and dives off in a clothesline for the three count. Scree! <laughs> oh, John. You know, you know Tally Hawk. <laughs> that gives the Road Warriors 20 points, and they win the overall tournament with 40 total versus the Steiners 35. 
The Steiners immediately hit the ring to congratulate the Road Warriors on the win, so everybody knows it's totally okay to cheer. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty chaotic, definitely hard-hitting as well. It's interesting when you got these pairings where they're willing to go all in on these spots, and definitely better than the last match they had. I mean, there's not that bizarre, long entrance part to it for sure. Fairly standard LOD stuff. I kind of wish the Samoan maybe did something to really elevate it or mix form a little bit, but they're just sort of big guy to a different extent than the Steiners or uh, Doom were. They're just big guys that get thrown around and and indicate they hit back on the Mm -hmm. LOD. It's not a bad match, but it's not as strong as I would hope it would be, especially because this is the finale of the tournament. Yeah. I feel like you really could have somehow canoodled the math to where your final is the Steiners and the Road Warriors. Make people wait for the match they really want to see and make it super important somehow. However you work out the finishes so the, the numbers get it right. I also know this is the second match of three where a hawk does a clothesline on a person while they're supposed to be not looking, whether they actually are or not. And again, they're the good guys here. Yeah. Also... It is the same finish as the only other time they win in the show, which is kind of a shame. Yeah. A hawk leaping off of the turnbuckle is never a shame. <laughs> it's Fair never enough. a bad thing. Not a bad thing. I like the finish. It's clean-ish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. Pins finish is always going to be better in this sort of thing. Sure. You know, some good trade-offs. Uh, anytime you can pick up animal and throw them around, you know, it's going to be it's going to be pretty impressive. Yeah. Because you'll do the same thing right back to you. The eye gouging was a little rough for me. Um, Samoans actually at one point, you know, they have him in the corner and just like ripping at his face. So uh, mm-hmm. that that's the one spot that kind of just um, is kind of ingrained in my mind. Well, do do bear in mind, LED attacked Dusty's eye last time. This would be their comeuppance. Yeah. Yeah. Karma. Yeah. See. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it okay. I, I I just wasn't expecting comeuppance, so uh, <laughs> not many people do. I, I don't feel overly positive or overly negative about it. I, I'm i just glad the LED won. The better of two dooms won. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. So we had three matches, obviously, from the Samoans tonight. What's your feeling on where this one ranks? Is this the best of the three, middle, lowest? Um, I'd say it's the most solid of the three for me. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. That's That's where I am on it, too. I think... This is the match where I felt like I got to see a little bit more of the Samoans' actual skills in the ring. Um, they get a few nice spots in. I particularly love the, the like, just muscle him over for a suplex uh, spot. Both teams put on a pretty good show, despite this being the third match for both of them. There were some times where I felt like it looked like they were a little tired, but honestly, it could have just been them selling, and either way, it worked with the match's story. The ending did get a little bit muddled. It kind of looked like Animal almost blocked the way as they were setting up for the clothesline spot, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. it still ended up working well enough. It does feel like quite a short match for the final match of the tournament. It lacks any kind of epic feel. It just comes off as any other pretty good tag match, and that's not really what you want to be ending a tournament on. I think it is the shortest of the tag match. It probably is, yeah. It, It definitely feels that way. It's It's... Which gives it a nice fast pace, but it just feels like, oh, there's not really anything particularly, like, bigger about this match compared to any of the earlier stuff. Definitely the most epic of the tag matches is the Steiners versus LOD one. 
I can kind of see why you don't want to end the tournament on that one. And doing it this way gave you some interesting concepts with the, with the point totals and everything. But I can also see, like, if you wanted to end it on the on the strongest match, that would definitely be it. My only other uh, thought on this one is, since the Samoans can win by count-out or DQ, and they still get the overall win that way, it would have been kind of nice to see them try to slip in a quick win by one of those fashions, like trying to sucker the Road Warriors into throwing them over the top rope, or trying to drag one outside and time a win by count-out, or something like that. Like a chasing and pulling them back into the <laughs> Yeah. The Road Warriors winning does feel right. I like that. But I just would have liked to see the Samoans try something to get a win by one of the methods that's open to them that's not open to the Road Warriors. Would have been a nice nod to the show-long storyline. But... Overall, I, 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 I'm, I'm with you guys. This is the strongest of the Samoan matches, and it's a respectable tag match. Mm-hmm. And, and this may seem weird. I, I'm confused that they were, they were you know, in the running. <laughs> I, I didn't think that they had a, a real chance with the quality of the first two matches. Mm-hmm. Well, I say, and with them being last-minute fill-ins. Mm-hmm. Because you wonder what the booking was with the skyscraper. They've been. The I kind of, that's where I kind of feel like maybe they were actually just slotted in literally with the skyscrapers booking. Could so be. the 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 specifics of the matches are a little different. But I I would not be at all surprised if it's like the that exact sequence is supposed to happen with the skyscrapers instead. Could be. Or we could have a sixteen match show. Oh god! Please no. <laughs> Ten minutes. <sighs> Ten minutes each. I actually thought the fatigue looked real. Like there were several points where Animal and Hawk, you can like you can see their legs wobble a little bit, you know, after doing a big move or trying to pick up. Where you know in the first two matches that they're in, you know they're just throwing people around, mm-hmm. and Samoans the same way, still very powerful, but there is like some lag between those things. And like when they uh, hit the mat, they just sit there for a second. They're just like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna either side. I'm just gonna relax for like at least two or three seconds. I'm gonna let them get that two count. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think they pointed out on this show, but that is sometimes a strategy thing that the announcers will point out with wrestlers that you've got three seconds. Catch your breath. Actually, take those two point eight seconds and then kick out rather than trying to do it immediately and wearing yourself out more. So I can see that being kind of an unspoken part of the storyline here. And with a time limit, it makes sense too. Mm-hmm. Our final match is the end of the singles tournament, and it's Sting versus Ric Flair. Sting has done new face paint to get all dressed up for the main event. Flair didn't bother to robe up, though. So our standings heading into this final match of the singles tournament are Luger at 35, Flair at 25, Muta at 0, and Sting at 20. Luger is in the lead. Flair can win with a pinfall, submission, or countout, and tie with a DQ. Sting can win with a pinfall or submission, or tie with a countout. If Sting and Flair draw, or if Sting wins by DQ, Luger wins the tournament. I appreciate that it's actually a different situation slightly from the end of the tag tournament. The point totals aren't quite the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. JR builds up the Sting versus Flair match from the first Clash of the Champions, and says that that made Sting as a superstar. But, he warns, they went to the time limit in that match. And Sting can't let that happen here if he wants to win the tournament. That's true. The two shake hands, mostly missed by the camera. And Sting wins an early exchange, only for Flair to roll out of the ring and break his momentum. 
Flair gets back in and taunts Sting with a couple woos. <laughs> but Sting responds with a stinger call that gets monster cheers, then gives Flair a wonderfully smug look. <laughs> <laughs> Flair gets the edge as Sting tries a wrist lock, and Flair just easily lifts him up on his shoulders and carries him to the turnbuckle, setting him gently down and backing off while wagging his finger at Sting. The crowd reacts big to that, and we get dueling chants. <laughs> they go into a fast-running sequence, and Sting leapfrogs Flair several times before pressing him up and dropping him. Flair gets angry at that and shoves Sting, who shoves him down in response. Flair rolls out, taking time to calm down. He gets back in, and Sting, confused, questions him about the outburst. Flair gets more aggressive, landing hard chops that knock Sting around the ring, so Sting opens up as well and lands great drop kicks and a heck of a clothesline that nearly gets him the win. Flair fakes being hurt to make Sting drop his guard, then kicks him in the gut and chucks him out through the ropes before smashing him to the barricade. The crowd has now pretty solidly decided that they're for Sting. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Flair snaps Sting's neck across the ropes and does a beautiful delayed suplex to bring him back in, clearly trying to hurt Sting now. Flair also yells at Patrick for not counting fast enough on pin attempts. Sting finally absorbs the throw into the turnbuckle and lunges out with a clothesline that catches Flair just as he was giving a woo in a great spot. <laughs> Beautiful timing. Angry, Sting starts no-selling chops as he stalks after Flair. Flair gets to the apron and tries to suplex Sting to the outside of the ring, but Sting blocks it and suplexes Flair into the ring instead for another close call. Sting gets fired up and quickly leads up to the Stinger Splash and Scorpion Deathlock. Flair lunges for the ropes to break it, then nails a shinbreaker and gets the figure four. Sting lunges for the ropes to break that. Great way to show how familiar they are with each other and how serious these moves are. Mm -hmm. Sting's leg is hurting, so Flair lands the kicks and knee drops to it. There's a smooth, complicated mat wrestling sequence that ends with Sting bridging out of a pin and whipping into a backslide for two. Really well done. Flair keeps damaging Sting's leg, and with 30 seconds left, he goes for the figure four. But he gets overconfident, and Sting suddenly rolls him up for the three. Sting gets 20 points and wins the tournament. Fireworks go off. Flair gets in Sting's face, and Arn and Oli hit the ring. For a moment, it looks like they might be about to beat him down. Arn, in particular, gets seriously scary, beckoning for Sting to come over here, come over here. But Flair shakes Sting's hand, and Arn and Oli raise his arms in victory, then shake hands as well. My first note was, could this be anything but good? <laughs> That's true. I mean, unless they're like some sort of grievous injury, I can't imagine these two having a bad match. Yeah. You have to go out of their way to try to do it. They definitely have chemistry together, as this match and future matches will show. It's clear why they put the two together. Sting is his natural baby face, and Flair does an interesting arc throughout the match where he starts out as a respectful face, but gets annoyed as he can't get the victory. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really getting to him that he can't put Sting away. I joke that one day, Look Flair will learn to not lean forward so much when he does the figure four. <laughs> so as you will see in later shows, he loses a lot of matches by just leaning forward just a bit too much and gets rolled up. Yeah. I like that they kind of portray it in this one as, like I said, it feels like he gets overconfident. Oh, yeah. Where he's like, oh, Sting's hurt. I can take my time on this, or mm -hmm. he doesn't, because in the Luger match, he whips it on there really fast. Oh, yeah, yeah. In this match, he kind of, like, grabs the leg, pauses for a moment, like, I think he actually maybe even does a woo or something I like that. I think he does, yeah. And then just goes very, like, confidently for it. 
this one of the few times he doesn't do the um, slap and or chop sting while he's yes. having the hold, though. <laughs> I kept waiting for that to happen when he had the figure four. So the thing could power up. But they, they hadn't done that spot yet. No. Soon. He got he got it with Luger last year, though. That's true. That's yeah. true, yeah. But, you know, it's a really great match. There's a great story where both of them get more aggressive throughout it as time ticks down. Flair is definitely more of a heelish way, whereas Stings is just being more aggressive to try and win a match. Mm-hmm. Flair is definitely trying, like I said, definitely trying to hurt Sting. Finishes when he, the ending part where Arn and Ole pull him in and graduate him is definitely interesting for the long-term story as well. Mm-hmm. I'm replaying the match in my head. It was almost like flirtatious. <laughs> like with <laughs> mm-hmm. You got two big personalities, and, and they're, ha- they're clearly having some, some fun. They have great chemistry, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, especially the, you know, you're not going to do anything. Uh, yeah. You know, walking back and then the flex and the strut. When Sting went back at him after being slapped so many times, I, I was I was just grinning, you know. <laughs> it, was just, <laughs> it was it was a good change of pace. I was impressed with Ric Flair's athleticism in this. You know, he he did a lot of um, stale drops. He you know lifted him up by the knee and came down, and he was clearly doing a little bit more than he usually does in, in a typical match. So I think it was a great finale. It's one of the few times I'm not saying that Ric Flair is a bad sport but it's not characteristic of him to shake someone's hand at the end of the match mm-hmm. after losing and then having that resounding like approval. You've seen Rick as uh, like super heel, mm-hmm. you know, super bad guy for the past several years. So seeing him flirt with that, but not actually go to it and honor his challenger after the match is, is kind of an unusual thing for him. And I think it lifts both their characters up. I mm-hmm. mean, acknowledgement, and having Arn and, and Oli there to, to mm-hmm. chime in on that is nice. I didn't I didn't have the the same feel that you did though. Like I knew that they were going to do that for some reason. Mm. I, I didn't like feel as like threatened. <laughs> yeah, no, I felt massive tension there, and I honestly kind of still felt massive tension there even once they raised his arms. Like it feels like things are okay for now. We're all tense. We're all not sure what to think about this. But yeah, you won the tournament, so we're gonna honor you for it. Type of type of feeling. It was an interesting ending to the match. I thought really, really exceptional match here. Sting versus Flair is, like you said, Al always gonna be pretty reliable. Mm-hmm, yeah. But especially considering both of these guys have been in two prior matches, they did a heck of a job here, and they gave us a great final match for the show. The show's been kind of up and down, but this definitely ended it on a high note. I particularly liked the tension about Sting and Flair's friendship. Flair increasingly lets his frustration and anger rule him, and Sting is confused and hurt by the disrespect that Flair starts giving him. By the end of the match, Flair's trying to injure Sting, willing to go that far even against a friend. It kind of reminded me a bit of his development throughout the match with Dusty in Starcade 84. They don't start as close together no, yeah. as Flair and Sting do, but... You kind of got that same feeling of going from I'm trying to win the match to I'm going to do anything to win this match. Yeah. Sting seems to start out expecting like a friendly competition, kind of he's up for it. He's he's enjoying like, you know, trying to show each other up or things. But he ends up clearly angry as he sees the dark side of Ric Flair coming back. Sting's moves get a lot more speed and impact as the match goes on. And it's not that he's trying to hurt Flair himself. It's just that he's angry at this betrayal by a friend. And it's just like making him put more into this. Yeah. 
The two worked excellently together, and they had several fast-paced, complex sequences that they pulled off smooth as can be. The only complaint I think I can level against it is they go back quite a few times to the whole um, grab a headlock, whoops, you whip me to the ropes, now one of us hits a shoulder block spot. Uh, there's a, so much to this match that I can forgive them for needing to use that transition a bit much. One more thing to note, just like last time, I felt like maybe it would have been nice to have a little something from the show long story here as well, that Luger's in the lead, and he needs this match to end in certain ways for things to work for him. I get why the Steiners wouldn't interfere, obviously, being faces, but Luger's a heel, so if Sting gets DQ'd, he wins. Yeah, It'd be kind of interesting to see him come down and try to make that happen. Not that I'd want it to actually happen, but oh, I do. it'd just be a nice touch. No, I think if it wasn't the last match of the night, it would have set up such a unique storyline. Like, even if he didn't interfere and Lex just won by default, now you have a new storyline where they're both against Lex. Yeah, true. And, you know, he can really gloat and really become, like, the worst heel ever in that era. Now you can have both Sting and Flair be faces if they want to. Mm Mm-hmm. I can see there's there's definitely some story potential there, yeah. If it was the second to last and they did the ta- the tag last, I think you could still end on a high note. I get you. Yeah. And then they and then after the tag, you know, the tag match is the final match, then you could have a lo- locker room brawl and and start yeah. this whole off, you know, like people are just leaving excited and teased. I could see that, yeah. But the way this has worked out, keep it. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I do have to admit Luger does have an excuse for not coming down to try to interfere in the match or anything, that he did get kicked in the leg roughly 800 times and then got mysterious mist sprayed in his face, so he's probably busy backstage getting several different varieties of medical treatment. I wonder if he Luger sells at the doctor's office. (laughs) (laughs) How's it feel on a scale of whoa to whoa? Uh. But yeah, this is like modern-day WWE. They would be having the Flair Sting match, and they cut to the back, and Luger would be sitting there like with a towel over his shoulder, Staring awkwardly at sideways at TV. Oh, yeah, going, yeah. You got to have the, match out. The, the weird angle of watching the television, yeah. Never straight ahead. It's always at a side angle. <laughs> In any case, excellent match. Great way to end the tournament. Great way to end the night. Yeah. We go to the stage with Gordon Soley, who's with the Road Warriors. Soley calls it an exciting and grueling night. I can agree with both of those. Yeah. Get one of those shoulders up, but just could... Ladies and gentlemen, the winners of the Iron Team Division, the Road Warriors, are standing by. They are with Gordon Soley. Thank you very much, Jim. And may I just say, one of the most exciting and grueling nights of wrestling I've ever witnessed in my career. Standing with me now are the tag team champions, the Road Warriors. Gentlemen, congratulations. Atlanta, you now know who the Iron Men are. The Road Warriors, we come out to that tune every stinking match. And we lived up to it every stinking match. And tonight, we did it again for you and for us. You know, Sunday Gordon Sully, the most diehard fans in the wrestling world are right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you so very much, gentlemen. I'm going to try and get uh, the winner of the single tournament over here in just a moment. Precious Paul Ellering, of course, manager of the Road Warriors, and as soon as Sting makes it on site, well, I will be ready to go. 
Aaron Soley, the average football player, maybe plays 11 minutes in an entire game. We're out here busting our butts for no less than 30 minutes at a time. If we are real athletes, then I don't know what is. Oh, wow. A truly WCW way to end the show. This was the best ending I could have ever hoped for. (laughs) I don't know how they screwed this up so badly. It's like so many flubs in such a short time. They cut off the Road Warriors to talk to Sting, even though Sting's not there yet. Then they cut to the credits early while the Road Warriors are talking again. Then they start up the credits music, so we barely hear Flair delivering his famous to be the man you've got to beat the man line for the first time at a Starcade. And then they actually end the show before Sting, the winner of the tournament and the focus of the night's story, even gets to speak. Yeah. <laughs> what the heck? It's amazing. The only way it could have been better is if more f- pyrotechnics went off. <laughs> just like at random yeah scare everyone on stage yeah it's 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 absolutely beautiful <laughs> i have waited for a moment like this this is a wcw moment it's a moment where it all comes together into something that is such an epic failure that it turns right back around and becomes awesome i'm so happy and that's not sarcasm <laughs> Yeah, don't get me wrong. I love it when WCW gets things right, but wow, when they get it this wrong, it is an absolute joy to watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As for the actual promos, I mean, what I could hear of Flair's was good. Yeah. The Road Warriors cut probably the most generic promo in wrestling there, just saying they're tough and praising the fans. And Sting cut a promo rivaled only by the famous to be or not to be speech from Hamlet and his brilliance, I assume, since I didn't get to hear it. Whatever you said, it must have been great. Yeah. Poor Gordon Soley. <laughs> I enjoyed the Legion of Doom's promo. They they were clearly didn't need the mics, and no, no, they were really into it. And I thought it was great that they think the fans before thinking themselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Al, any uh, information on storylines coming out of the show? Doom, who obviously went zero out of three for their show, they got pretty bad luck for their first few months. Their manager leaves them for not winning matches. Then they lose a match against Steiner where they challenge the titles, but put their mask on the line, and they fail. So now they're unmasked. Okay. So now everyone knows they're Ron Tim and the Butch Reed, which would be really bad, except they then go on to win the titles later that year and have a dominant run for the rest of 1990. Well, you got to hit rock bottom before you climb back to the top, I guess. Always darkest for the dawn and all that. Yeah, I yeah exactly. Always darkest before the doom. There you go. <laughs> if you fall into a pit, you're already buried. Okay. <laughs> oh, is that is that is that, in your, is that your bumper sticker on your car? <laughs> so the Road Warriors' um, future is interesting. They would go on a few with the skyscrapers. Although the line of the skyscrapers, they fight at the next show in a, in a Chicago street fight, would not be against either of the skyscrapers that they were fighting before this show. The lineup changes two times before their final matchup to blow up the feud between the skyscrapers. That's hilarious. I'll go into more depth when we get to watch some of this, but it's pretty amazing how 
this seemingly unstoppable story of these two unstoppable teams falls apart so quickly in so <laughs> such amazing fashion. As for the Samoans, they do not do much of note. They no-show an event. I forget which one it is. And they leave that summer. Oh, okay. Now, you think going out of this, the Rory won the tournament. And you think they're going to be the next person in the challenge. the Steiner Brothers for the title. You would right? think so, yeah. So at Wrestle War, the very next show they have in January, the tag title match between the Steiner Brothers and Arn and Ole Anderson. Well, I'm happy about that anyway. Yeah, they they don't seem to ever challenge the Steiners for a pay-per-view at all in 1990. Oh, that's disappointing, but at least the Andersons get a chance. <laughs> yeah, it's just a little weird that that's where that goes. Yeah. Lex Luger would go on to challenge Flair in multiple title matches due to issues that happened with Sting. Sting would be put into the Four Horsemen. They realized that he could beat Flair, so he's a true challenge for the title. And the idea is that he's, he's not a threat to us if he's part of us. However, Sting ultimately does still want him with the world title, and they're unhappy with that as they kick him out of the group. And they're replacing him with Sid Vicious and Barry Windham, who comes back again. As for Great Muda, he would go on to lose the TV title in guess which month? January? Yes. Yes! It returns! <laughs> to R. Anderson. And he would go Yay. on a couple of ma- Yeah. Sure. <laughs> we did a couple more matches, and then we'll leave the company entirely before the early part of 1990 was over. However, he will be back at Starcade 1990 in a different fashion. Okay. Overall thoughts on Starcade 89? It's a, definitely a good show. Overall, it's a fairly easy watch. All the matches that are strong are very strong. There's not really much middle-of-the-road stuff. The worst shows for me are really the middle-of-the-road shows because the good parts are okay, not great, and then when it gets bad, it gets really bad. Mm-hmm. So they're the hardest to sit through. It's like watching a boring movie versus a really bad movie. You want to watch a great movie, an epic classic, you know, Ben-Hur, something like that movie, or you want to watch Ed Wood. <laughs> the two extremes. You don't want to watch, and eh, it's okay, and the movie, you forget about it. Yeah. That's kind of the same with wrestling for me. This one definitely has peaks and valleys. The singles matches definitely were the stronger part for me. They had clear stories and somewhat different stories where the tag title matches, alternating components out, never really told much different story other than, I need to beat you and get points. Mm-hmm. And that's really all they said. It's definitely interesting that in both cases, the champion, the top champion that is, isn't the winner of the tournament. Because that set definitely sets you up with more stories. Yeah. It's just in this case, that doesn't set up the story you would think, which is the Road Warriors challenge the Steiners. If you just have the champion win, one, that's predictable, and two, you haven't built anyone up. Exactly. So, yeah, letting another team win and letting another singles wrestler win gave you a little bit of a, of a build-up for someone that wasn't already at that top peak. Mm-hmm. But overall, I think it's a pretty strong show. There are definitely low points towards the middle when you realize attack form is not that exciting, and then when the matches themselves get less interesting, they're hard to sit there because there's nothing interesting to them. Mm-hmm. But overall, it's, just, it's a strong show. Okay. Uh, John, thoughts? I really like the idea of the point system. It shows that they're trying to do different things. Mm-hmm. It solves a lot of problems where traditionally you don't see the main event until like the last minute. And here you get to see your favorite character or multiple characters at least three times. Yeah. In one night. So if you came just for Sting and Sting was the final match like it was, you know, here, you'd wait all night. 
now you get to showcase that same person three times or you mm-hmm. get to see your favorite tag team match three times. But that said, when we hit match seven or eight, just because of the number of matches, not necessarily the length or the quality or anything, I was getting a little bit of fatigue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the The last two or three matches brought me out of that, but you know there was a time where I was like, all right, great. <laughs> Yeah. C- come on, DQ. <laughs> <laughs> or pen, or something that, if it wasn't every single one, with the exception of Flair and Muda, if they weren't all in that 13 to... Some of them were 12, but they pretended like they were 15. Yeah. If there was more varied in the length, not only would they have time for interviews at the end, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. Supposedly. I think it would have been a, a little bit better... But they definitely get a lot of points for doing that because I think it's a great way to give the fans what they want. Mm-hmm. As far as the performances, I liked that there was some, it seemed like character development or you could really see how they interacted with different people in the ring and what strategy they would use. So it added a little bit of variety. Obviously, if you're going up against a really technical character, you've got to focus on your strength or try to get that timeout or something else along those lines. So. It was interesting. Okay. For me, this felt pretty long. It's actually about the same length as last year, but with 12 matches, it felt much longer. I think I just have a limit to how many matches I can process on a single show, and it didn't help that they were all just basic tag and singles matches, nothing really to break anything up or be different. I did appreciate that they at least alternated types this year. But really, last year I was saying that four tag matches was too much, so this year they did six? (laughs) Yeah, right. The actual match quality was mostly acceptable to good, but around halfway through the show, I started seriously struggling to maintain interest. Like I said, it didn't help that we then hit the Steiners versus Samoans match, which was full of stalling and just goofing around. By the time I was through watching that one, I was kind of giving up on this Starcade. As I mentioned before, Luger versus Muta helped a lot. It felt different and interesting and had a good, strong story thread from earlier in the night. By the time it was over, I was in a good mood again. The Samoans versus the Road Warriors was pretty good, if a quick match to close out the tag tournament, and Sting versus Flair was an excellent end to the show with a strong story, so I ended up feeling good about the show as a whole. But man, was it worth getting there. There's not a lot to speak of otherwise on this show, which probably helped keep it to the same length as last year, but it also hurt any sense of larger-than-life feel. We don't get interviews except at the end, and let's face it, we don't really get those either. No. Not that I want this show to be longer, but I would have liked maybe even a few seconds from the wrestlers involved in the lead-up to their matches. We could even do it as, I don't know, like a picture-in-picture thing during entrances, since it's not like there was much of anything going on with those anyway this year. The wrestlers mostly don't even get their music. Yeah. Oh, went to that video screen, or that, that CG in the beginning. <laughs> The announced team, some questionable comments aside, did benefit the show. It was a good idea to vary it up a bit, with JR as the reliable heart of the team and Cornette and Funk chiming in on their areas of expertise. It made for an interesting atmosphere, and JR worked well with both. Their discussions mostly added depth to the matches, and helped bring the night's stories together. That's important, since the show really didn't use any other tools to do so. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Overall, I think there's matches from this show I could recommend, but I don't think I'd recommend watching the thing the whole way through. There's too many similar matches, too little story content, and a very business-like kind of flow 
just match to match to match to make the show underwhelming. The single side comes off way better than the tags for the most part. I again felt like I could feel the tag formula more as the night went on, but the show felt dull and unimportant until those final few matches. The ending, though, is well worth your time if you love production errors as much as I do. (laughs) That was absolutely wonderful. I can see why the tag portions fall a little short. You definitely are able to focus on one thing with Mm one-on-one. And if you like one character out of each tag team, you know, you're only getting them on the map for half the time. Yeah, true. If there was less tag ones and maybe there were 20 minutes, hey, it might have been a better show. Yeah. You mentioned to do a three-person tournament or an in-three-team. I'm interesting. You had less matches, maybe a lengthier one, and less complicated math, for sure. <laughs> yeah. The early shows, like 83 through 86, someone in 87, they were NWA super shows. Yeah. It was, we're the NWA, here's our top champion, and here's a random guy from some territory, we'll have the Florida title here one week, or one show, rather, then we'll have the Western State Territory Championship belt <laughs> yes. on another show. Had the name <laughs> drop that once. And they also mixed up the match variety on those that way because different territories might always like doing cage matches so this person from this NWA branch would do a cage match as a tag match or singles match and this one would do straight singles or mixed tags. We started to see a little more variety towards the end when he had a six man tag for once. Mm -hmm. This one was definitely here's the top stars of the WCW slash TBS and we're going to showcase them in this small microcosm of a show yeah. That doesn't really feel like it's the biggest show of the year. If this was a Great American Bash, you go, okay, this is a middle-of-the-year show to establish these stories going forward, whereas it's supposed to be Starcade. It should be the big Ric Flair match, someone's christening, someone's downfall, yeah. some team coming up. It but feels kind of weird that they get all experimental with Starcade of all things. Yeah. Right? Because this at this point, they have a early show. It changes what it was. Sometimes it's Russell Wars, sometimes it's the ill-fated Bunkhouse Stampede, and they have a middle-of-the-year show with Great American Bash, just strongly established, and they just start Halloween Havoc. So it's not like they only have one show and they have one place to experiment. They have other places, and it's weird they picked this one, yeah. You know, I was surprised. I mean, Muda was new to me, but it, you know, usually they, they showcase someone even newer. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't a new star. The closest you'd have would be Doom, maybe. Because Doom debuts at Halloween Havoc. But they're showcased via losing all their matches, so... (laughs) And it's a good showcase. Yeah. But they're the the newest, I think, overall, yeah. Fair Mm. enough. There's not a debuting person or someone you always see one from this one territory, yeah. Yeah, it's a very different Starcade. Like you were pointing out, the earlier ones are all kind of the... If not the focus of the full year, at least like... There's a bunch of storylines all converging here. And this one, I mean, all the storyline stuff you gave beforehand, really the only thing that feels like it matters intensely to the show is the Sting and Flair stuff. Yeah. And that's great, but you don't have that that feeling of everything's converging at Starcade that we got on the earlier years. Uh, Match of the Night and MVP. Al, you want to go first? Sure. So I, I watched a couple of matches after I'd seen the show before to really help narrow it down between them. So it really did come down to the top singles matches. As much as I like the Legion of Doom Steiner's match, mm-hmm. 
I just really liked the more singular focus of the singles matches. I narrowly picked um, Sting and Flair as being the top match because they had the most exclusive finish and they have the big dramatic last second thing. But upon rewatch, I got a lot more as a surprise out of Luger versus Flair. Okay. Really seeing Lex Luger go full cocky heel and embrace it. All these little touches, like I said, pulling the hair, poking the eyes, yelling at the crowd. All these things he did really showed me elevation of him. And even though there's no solid finish to it, there's a draw, I did like their performance and extra things there. Take nothing away from the Sting-Luger match. I think what why this one helps me is because, like I said before, Sting is so likable. Luger didn't have to do as super mega heel mm-hmm. on him, whereas he really had to prove himself against a fairly untested as a face Flair, and to really try to match Flair's uber heel from previous shows. And I think he did that. Yeah, I can definitely see that. You you get a lot out of that match, and like you're saying, um, Luger has to put on one heck of a show there. So yeah, he, that's an exceptional uh, match. It's it's very very good. Picking MVP came down to me between the four single stars like, for the same reasons I mentioned. Unfortunately for me, Muda and Flair, as good as they overall are, out of the running because they had their one match super short. Well, mm-hmm. it's decent. It's just do you get King much out of it? So they only have two really strong longer performances. Sting and Luger have three. Mm-hmm. Sting really did shine a lot, but Luger going above and beyond and really transitioning his character impressed me enough that I gave him MVP. All right. Luger uh, Luger MVP. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, he puts on an exceptional performance tonight, so I can totally see that. John? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you right now, um, as I'm saying this, I'm not really certain on my MVP, but like you, I did enjoy... The Lex Luger and Great Muda. I didn't like the finish, you know, sure. or anything, but I enjoyed the um, athleticism. I, Luger did a wonderful job making sure that Muda looked good, and Muda <laughs> did some great mind mind tricks on on Lex, and it was just fun to watch. It was different than any other match of the night. I think that there was a nice interaction between them, and the only other one is just the way. The final match of the night was Sting and Flair. I enjoyed their personalities and the interaction and the charisma that happened between them. But that said, I'm going to go with Lex Luger and the Great Muda as my okay. my favorite match. Just because I really want to give Muda some sort of recognition. Mm-hmm. And Lex, because I, I think that the person that I, I want to choose as my favorite would be Sting still. Because I, I, I like the acknowledgement at the end. He had strong matches all night long, like Lex did. Uh, and come on, it's Sting. Right. <laughs> yeah, sure. He's pretty much always a safe bet, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> right. And, you know, I enjoyed that Lex Luger and Great Muda match quite a bit, but not enough to give it to Lex. Lex's performance was great, but I still think uh, Sting's, if you factor in all the matches, I think they came up a little bit higher. Okay. This, this is going to be pretty funny because, yeah, I was a bit down on the overall show, but there's some great matches in the mix. Sting versus Luger and Luger versus Flair were both great. Sting versus Muta and Sting versus Flair were both great. Steiners versus the Road Warriors, as I mentioned, was so fun that I actually forgot several times I was supposed to be taking notes. Yeah. But 
like you, John, my match of the night is Lex Luger versus the Great Muta. Yeah. It's just such a different match. It's sure. not the most technically brilliant on the show. The ending's flubbed a little thanks to the cameraman, but it felt unique, like you were saying. It felt like that right from the entrances. The visible worry on Luger's face as he comes out for the match, fully aware that he's probably utterly screwed. The absolute beating that Muda delivers. Mm-hmm. I mean, Luger gets next to no offense for most of the match. He just takes hit after hit after hit. Just about turns himself face with a crowd that had been mercilessly taunting him in his two prior matches. <laughs> Coming right after the Steiners versus the Samoans, which had me giving up on the show, Luger versus Muda woke me right back up and made me pay attention again. It managed to differentiate itself, and it stood out among all the matches. And for that, it earned my match of the night. For my MVP, there's only one man I can name. Sting. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone put on multiple performances, and some managed good ones even near the end of the show, but all three of Sting's performances tonight were great. He was Mr. Reliable. I knew when Sting came out I was going to see something good. He kept his energy all through the show, performed to his utmost every time he came out, kept up the excitement, and pulled out frequent, fast-paced exchanges that amazed every time. From his amazing catch of the ropes on a dive outside the ring, to his rapid mat wrestling with Flair, Sting's performances weren't just good, they were varied. He proved himself once again as a talented performer who tirelessly gave his all for the show. His great reactions to Flair's increasingly aggressive fighting style in the final match were the icing on the cake. His constantly exciting and energizing performances easily earned him my MVP for the night. There you go. And that wraps up our review of Starcade 89 Future Shock. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can search for us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the Starcades as we go through. What was your favorite match, and did you favor the singles or tag portion of this show? And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a nice review on iTunes, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover the show. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures. Before we go, a quick mention of a couple other podcasts. We're all big fans of role-playing games, tabletop or otherwise, and these two are shows that deserve some attention. First off, Storium Arc, a show dedicated to the online role-playing and creative writing game Storium. Full disclosure here, I'm a former member and still do some of the episode edits. But they have some great discussions on the game and on role-playing or writing in general, and are well worth a listen if that's an area of interest to you. Again, that's Storium Arc, S-T-O-R-I-U-M space A-R-C. Second, a D&D 5th edition podcast, also run by a Story Mark member, Zachary. Companions of the Perception Check. <laughs> Great name. <laughs> Features discussions on classes and system and story concepts, along with fun actual play sessions. Take a seat at the table with the Companions of the Perception Check and join the adventure. I'll put links into the episode description. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen and John Mullins, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. But get some sleep. (laughs) 